Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, a few things to announce here. I have an event in Los Angeles on July 11th. If you're a supporter of the podcast, you should have already received an email. This is actually the first event for the app. It's the first waking up event. It is at the Wiltern on July 11th. And it is with a great Tibetan Lama by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche. And Mingyur is a fascinating guy. He's the youngest son of the greatest Dzogchen master I ever studied with, Tukurgen Rinpoche. And uh, I wrote about him in my book, Waking Up, so that name might be familiar to some of you. I studied with him in Nepal about 30 years ago. And I've never met Mingyur, and he's about, I don't know, seven years younger than me. I was in my 20s when I was in Nepal, and he was a teenager, and he was on retreat for much of that time. He, he did his first three-year retreat when he was, I think, 13, and he was always described as the superstar of the family. I studied with two of his brothers, Chokinima Rinpoche and Sokin Rinpoche, but I've never met Mingyur, and uh, really looking forward to it. He has a very interesting story, because at some point he started teaching and started running monasteries. I believe he has three monasteries he's running, as well as a foundation. But then in 2011, when he was 36, he just disappeared from his monastery in India and spent the next four and a half years wandering around India as a mendicant yogi, living in caves and on the streets, and encountering all kinds of hardships. I believe he got very sick and almost died. Anyway, he's written a book about this, titled In Love with the World, uh, which I haven't read yet, but I will obviously read it before our event. And uh, we will discuss the book and the nature of mind and the practice of meditation, and take your questions. And again, that will be happening at the Wiltern in Los Angeles on July 11th. And you can find more information on my website at samharris.org forward slash events. And tickets are selling quickly there, so if you care about that event, I wouldn't wait. And the audio will eventually be released on the podcast. Okay. The Waking Up app. Uh, There have been a few changes. We've added Annika's Meditations for Children which are great. And um, there are some meta meditations coming from me as well. Also, we'll soon be giving you the ability to sit in groups uh, where you can organize a virtual group with your friends or colleagues and sit together, either in silence or listening to a guided meditation. And very soon there will be a web-based version of the course. Uh, You can get more information about all that at wakingup.com. So this podcast is the result of three interviews, and it is organized around a new book from my agent, John Brockman, who edited it. And the book is titled Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. And uh, you may have heard me mention John on the podcast before. He's not just a book agent, though between him and his wife, Katinka Matson and their son, Max Brockman, they have a near monopoly on scientific nonfiction. It's really quite impressive. Uh, Many of the authors you know and admire 
Steve Pinker, Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, and really most other people in that vein you could name, and many who have been on this podcast, are represented by them. But John is also a great connector of people and ideas. He seems to have met every interesting person in both the literary and art worlds since around 1960. And he's run the website edge.org for many years, which released its annual question for 20 years and uh, got many interesting people to write essays for that. And there have been many books published on the basis of those essays. He's also put together some great meetings and small conferences. So he's really facilitated dialogue to an unusual degree and at a very high level. And he's written his own books, The Third Culture and by the late John Brockman. But this new book is another one of his anthologies, and it's organized around a modern response to Norbert Wiener's book, The Human Use of Human Beings. Wiener was a mathematical prodigy and the father of cybernetics, and a contemporary of Alan Turing and John von Neumann and Claude Shannon and many of the people who were doing foundational work on computation. And Wiener's thoughts on artificial intelligence anticipate many of our modern concerns. Now, I didn't wind up contributing to this book. I had to sit this one out, but I will be speaking with three of the authors who did. The first is George Dyson. George is a historian of technology, and he's the author of Darwin Among the Machines and Turing's Cathedral. My second interview is with Alison Gopnik. Alison is a developmental psychologist at UC Berkeley. She's a leader in the field of children's learning and development, and her books include The Philosophical Baby. And finally, I'll be speaking with Stuart Russell, who's been on the podcast before. Stuart is a professor of computer science and engineering at UC Berkeley, and he's also the author of the most widely used textbook on AI titled Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. This is a deep look at the current state and near and perhaps distant future of AI. And now, without further delay, I bring you George Dyson. I am here with George Dyson. George, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So um, the occasion for this conversation is the uh, publication of our friend and mutual agent's book, Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. And this was edited by the great John Brockman. I am not in this book. I could not get my act together when John came calling. So unfortunately, I'm not in this very beautiful and, and erudite book. Previously, you wrote Turing's Cathedral, so you have a, you've been thinking about computation for quite some time. How, how do you summarize your, your intellectual history and, and what you focused on? Well, my interest yeah, goes back much farther than that. I mean, Turing's Cathedral is a recent book. But, mm. So 25 years ago, I was writing a book called Darwin Among the Machines at a time when there actually were no publishers publishing you know, any general literature about computers, except Addison Wesley, so they published it, thanks to John. The thing to remember about John, it, John it's a family business, and Katinka's father was a literary agent, and John's father, I think, was in the flower merchant business, uh -huh. so they have this very great combination of flowers have to be sold the same day, and books have to last forever. 
sort of works really well together. Yeah. And your your background is you also have a a family background that's relevant here because your father is Freeman Dyson, who many people will be aware is a famous physicist. He got inducted into the Manhattan Project right at the beginning as well, right? He was well, he was at the Institute for Advanced Study. Correct my sequencing here. First of all, the important thing in my background is not not so much my father, but my mother. My mother was a mathematical logician, so mm. she worked very closely with Kurt Gödel and you know knew Alan Turing's work in logic very well, and that's where the world of computers came out of that. My father, they both came to America at the same time in 1948, so long. the Manhattan Project was long over. My father had nothing to do with it. Oh, okay. He was working for the conventional bombing campaign in, for the Royal Air Force during the war, but not, okay. not the Manhattan Project. So your mother, so you have deep roots in the related physics of, and logic and mathematics of information, which has given us this now century of, or near century of computation, and has transformed everything. And, and it's, this is a, it's a fascinating intellectual history because the history of computing is intimately connected with the history of war, specifically you know, code breaking and, and bomb design. And you, you did cover this in Turing's Cathedral. You're often described as a, a historian of, of technology. Is that, is that correct? Does that label fit That's well with you? That's true, yes. I mean, more a historian of people, of the people who build the technologies. Mm-hmm. But, but it, somehow the label is historian of technology. I'm not a historian of science. That's also, I don't know why that's always, you know, it's just sort of a pigeonhole they put you into. But. So, you know, well, maybe we can walk through this topic by talking about some of the people. There are some fascinating characters here, and the, and the, the nominal inspiration for this conversation, for John's book, was his discovery or rediscovery of Norbert Wiener's book, The Human Use of Human Beings. But there were two, there were different paths through the history of, of thinking about information and computation and, and the prospect of building intelligent machines. And Wiener represented one of them, but the, there was another branch that became more influential, which was due to, to Alan Turing and John von Neumann. Maybe, well, I guess, who should we start with? Probably Alan Turing to, at, at the outset here. How do you think of Alan Turing's contribution to the advent of, of the computer? Well, it was, was very profound. Norbert Wiener was working, you know, in a similar way at, at almost the same time. So they all sort of came out of this together. They're sort of their sort of philosophical grandfather was Leibniz, mm. the German computer scientists and philosophers. They all sort of were disciples of of Leibniz and then and then, you know, executed that in, in different ways. Von Neumann and Wiener worked quite closely together at one time. Turing and Wiener never never really did work together, but they were they were very aware of each other's work. The young young Alan Turing, which also people forget, he came to America in in nineteen thirty six. So he was actually in a, in New Jersey when his great sort of paper on computation was published. So he was there in the same building with von Neumann. He said, oh, here's a bright oh, that's kid and offered, offered him a job, which he didn't take. He preferred to go back to England. Yeah, so that's, I don't know uh, how to think about that. What, what, so just 
bring your father into the picture here and, and perhaps your mother, if she knew all these guys as well, did they know von Neumann and Turing and Claude Shannon and Wiener? Or, was it, or what, what of these figures do you have some family lore around? Uh, yes and no. They knew, you know, they both knew Johnny von Neumann quite well because he was, he was sort of in circulation. My father had met Norbert Wiener, but, but did, never worked with him, didn't really know him. And neither of them actually met Alan Turing, but of course my, my father came from Cambridge where, where Turing had been sort of a fixture. They both, I mean, my father said was that when, you know, he read Turing's paper when it came out and he, you know, he thought, like many people, he thought this was sort of the least likely, you know, this was interesting logic, but it would have no great effect on the real world. I think my mother was probably maybe a little more prescient that, you know, logic really would change the world. Von Neumann is perhaps the, the most colorful character here. I mean, this, there, there seems to be an absolute convergence of opinion that regardless of the fact that he, he may not have made the greatest contributions to, in the history of science, he seemed to have just bowled everyone over and given a lasting impression that he was the smartest person they had ever met. Does that ring true in, in the family as well, or, is, or, or have estimations of von Neumann's intelligence been exaggerated? No, I don't think that's exaggerated at all. I mean, he, he was impressively sharp and smart, extremely good memory, you know, phenomenal calculation skills, sort of everything. Plus, he had this, uh, you know, his real genius was not entrepreneurship, but just being able to put everything together. His father was an investment banker, so he, he had no shyness about just asking for money. That was, I mean, that was sort of in some ways almost his most important contribution was he, he was the guy who could get the money to do these things that other people simply dreamed of. But, but he got them done, and he, and he hired the right people. He's sort of like the orchestra conductor who get the best violin player and put them all together. Yeah, I mean, so and these stories are—I mean, I think I've referenced them occasionally on the podcast, but it, it is a—it's astounding to just read this record because you have the really the greatest physicists and mathematicians of the time all gossiping essentially about this one figure, who I mean, certainly Edward Teller was of this opinion, and I think you know he's—I think there's a quote from him somewhere which says that you know if we ever evolve into a master race of super intelligent humans, you will recognize that that von Neumann was the prefiguring example. Like this is this is how we will appear when we are fundamentally different from what we are now, and. Wigner and, and other physicists seem to concur. The stories about him are these two measures of intelligence, both memory and processing speed. You grab both of those knobs and turn them up to 11, and that just seems to be the impression you make on everyone, that you're just a different sort of mind. Yeah, it's sort of in, in other ways, it's a great tragedy because he was doing really good work in you know, pure mathematics and logic and game theory, quantum mechanics and those kinds of things, and then got completely distracted by the, uh, the weapons and the computers, never never really got back to any real science, and then mm -hmm. died young, like Alan, like Alan Turing, the very same thing. So we sort of lost these two brilliant minds who 
not only died young, but but sort of professionally died very early because they got they got sucked into the war, never came back. Mm. Yeah, there was there was an ethical split there because Norbert Wiener, who was again part of this conversation fairly early, I think it was forty seven, published a, a piece in the Atlantic, more or less vowing never to let his intellectual property have any point of contact with military efforts. And so at the time, it was all very fraught, seeing that physics and mathematics was the engine of, of destruction, however ethically purposed. You know, obviously, there's, there's a place to stand where the Manhattan Project looks like a very good thing, you know, that we won the race to fission before um, the Nazis could get there. But it's a uh, ethically complicated time, certainly. Yes, and that's where you know Norbert Wiener worked very intensively and effectively for the military in in both World War One. He was at the proving ground in World War One and World War Two, but he worked on on anti aircraft defense. And what people forget was that it was pretty far along at Los Alamos when we knew when we learned that the Germans were not actually building nuclear weapons. And at that point, people like Norbert Wiener wanted nothing more to do with it. And particularly, Norbert Wiener wanted nothing to do with the hydrogen bomb. There was no military justification for a hydrogen bomb. The only use of those weapons still today, it's, it's against, you know, it's genocide against civilians. They, they have no military use. Do you recall the, the history on the German side? I, I know there's, there is a, a story about Heisenberg's involvement in the German bomb effort. and I, But I can't remember if rumors of his having intentionally slowed that or not are, in fact, true. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's a whole other subject. We probably stay. Stay away from? Not get into that, but, and, I, and I'm not the expert on that. But what, you know, what little I do know is that it became known at Los Alamos late, later in the project that, that there really was no German threat, yet then the decision was made to keep working on it. There were, there were a few people, now there's one whose name I don't remember who it was, who, you know, one or two physicists actually quit work when they learned that the mm -hmm. German program was, was not a real threat. But most, you know, most people chose to keep working on it. That was a very moral decision. Yeah, but how do you view it? Do you, do you view it as a, um, a straightforward good one way or the other, or how, how would you have navigated that and, and if you have extremely any extremely complicated very very complex i mean of, of the you know those people you, you were talking about the martians the, the sort of extraterrestrial hungarians they all kept working on the weapons except leo Szilard, who who actually he was at chicago he'd been sort of excommunicated from los alamos was groves wanted to have him put in jail and he s circulated a petition i think it was signed by 67 physicists from chicago to to not use the weapon against the civilians of Japan, to, to at least give a demonstration against a you know unpopulated target. And that petition never even reached the president. It was sort of embargoed. I've never understood why a demonstration wasn't a more obvious option. I mean, what, what was the fear that it, it wouldn't work? And Yes, because they didn't know. And, and they had only... A very few weapons at that time, yeah, two or three. Right. So there were, there were a lot, of, but that's that's again a, a story that's still to be figured out. And, and I think the people like von Neumann carried a lot of that to the grave with them. But 
but you know Edward Teller's answer to the Szilard petition was, you know, I I'd love to sign your petition, but I think his exact words were, "The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of fiddling with politics will save our souls." That's pretty much an exact quote. Yeah, so I, I think Teller was first. Teller was uh, yeah another one of these these Hungarian mutants along with von Neumann and the two of them really inspired the continued progress past a fission weapon and on to a a fusion one. And computation was an absolutely necessary condition of that progress. So the the story of the the birth of the computer is largely, or at least at least the the uh, the growth of of our power in building computers is largely the story of the imperative that we felt to build the H bomb. Right, and what's weird is that we're sort of stuck with it. Like you know, for sixty years, we've been stuck with this computational architecture that was developed for this very particular problem to do numerical hydrodynamics to to solve this hydrogen bomb question. To to know the the question was. Would the Russians, they knew the Russians were working on it because von Neumann had worked intimately with Klaus Fuchs, who turned out to be a Russian spy. So they knew the Russians sort of knew everything they did. But the question was, was it possible? And you needed computers to figure that out. And they, they got the computer working. And then, you know, now 67 years later, our, our computers are still exact copies of that particular machine they built to, to do that job. It's a very, n- none of those people would. I think they would find it incomprehensible if they if they came back today and saw that you know we hadn't really made any architectural improvements. Is this a controversial position at all in computer circles, or is this acknowledged that having that the von Neumann architecture, as I think it is still called, we got stuck in this legacy paradigm, which is by no means necessarily the best for building computers? Yeah, no, they knew it wasn't. But I mean, I mean. Already, even by the time Alan Turing came to Princeton, he was working on completely different kinds of computation. He, he was already sort of bored with the Turing machine. He, he, he was interested in much more interesting sort of non-deterministic machines. And the same with von Neumann. He, you know, long before that project was finished, he was thinking about other things. And what's, what's interesting about von Neumann is he only has one patent. And the one patent he took out was for a completely non-von Neumann computer that uh, IBM bought from him for $50,000. Sort of mm-hmm. Another strange story that hasn't quite, I think, been figured out. Presumably that was when $50,000 really meant something. It was an enormous amount of money. I mean, just a huge amount of money. So, it was, it's a, so yeah, so he, they all wanted to build different kinds of computers. And if they had lived, and I think they would have. In your contribution to this book, you talk about the prospect of analog versus digital computing make that intelligible to uh, the the non-computer scientist. Yes, so there are really two very different kinds of computers. There's it sort of goes again back to Turing in sort of a mathematical sense. There are there are continuous functions that vary continuously, which is sort of how we perceive time or the, the frequency of sound or those sorts of things. And then there are discrete functions, the sort of ones and zeros and bits that that took over the world. And, and Alan Turing gave this very brilliant proof of what you could do with a purely digital machine. But 
both Alan Turing and von Neumann were almost, you know, towards the end of their life, obsessed with the fact that nature doesn't do this. Nature does this in a in our genetic systems. We use digital coding because digital coding is, as Shannon showed us, is so good at error correction. But you know, continuous functions and analog computing are better for control. All control systems in nature, all nervous systems, the human brain, the brain of a fruit fly, the brain of a mouse, those are all analog computers, not digital. There's no digital code in the brain. And von Neumann, you know, wrote a whole book about that that people have misunderstood. I guess you could say that, that whether or not a neuron fires is a digital signal, but then the, the analog component is downstream of that, just the different synaptic weights and right, but there's no, no code. There's no code with a logical meaning. It's a you know the complexity is not in the code. It's in it's in the topology right. and the connections of the na- network. And everybody knew that. You can take apart a brain. You don't find any sort of digital code. There's no there's no. Al- I mean, now we're sort of obsessed with this idea of algorithms, which is what what Alan Turing gave us. But but there are no algorithms in a nervous system or a brain those that's a much 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 sort of higher level function that 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 comes later well so you introduced a, another personality here and and a a concept so let's just do a um a potted bio on claude shannon and this notion that digitizing information was somehow of value with respect to error correction yes I mean, what, what claude shannon's great contribution was sort of Modern information theory, which you can you can make a very good case, he actually sort of took those ideas from Norbert Wiener, who was explaining to them to him during the war. But but it was Shannon who published the great manifesto on that, that proving that you can you can sort of communicate with reliable accuracy given any arbitrary amount of noise by using digital coding, and that none of our computers would work without that. The fact that the Basically, your computer is a communication device and has to communicate these hugely complicated states from one fraction of a microsecond to the next billions of times a second. And, and the fact that we do that perfectly is, is due to Shannon's you know, his theory and his model of how, how can you do that in an accurate way. Is there a way to make that intuitively understandable, why that would be so? I mean, what, what I picture is like cogs in a gear where it's like you're either all in one slot or you're all out of it and so any looseness of fit keeps reverting back to you fall back into the well of the gear or you you slip out of it whereas something that's truly continuous that is to say analog admits of errors that are that are undetectable because you just you're kind of sliding off a, a more continuous smoother surface do you have a, a yeah, better? that's a good. That's a very good way to explain it. Now it has this fatal flaw that you sort of sort of there's a, there's always a price for everything, and so you you can get this perfect digital accuracy where where you can make sure that every bit, billions of bits, and every bit is in the right place. Your software will work. But the fatal flaw is that if for some reason a bit isn't in the right place, then the whole machine grinds to a halt, whereas the, the analog machine will keep going. It's much, much more robust against failure. So are, are you in touch with people who are pursuing this other line of building intelligent machines now? I mean, what, what, did, what does analog computation look like circa 2019? 
Well, it's it's coming at us from two in two directions. There's bottom up and there's sort of top down. And the bottom up is actually extremely interesting. And I'm, I'm you know I'm professionally not a computer scientist. I just you know I'm a historian, so I look at the past. But occasionally I get dragged into uh, a meeting a couple of years ago that was was actually held at Intel. You'll have a meeting like that, and they, they like the voice of a historian there, so I get to go. And there, this was an entire meeting of people working on building analog chips from the bottom up using the same technology we use to build digital computers, but to build completely different kinds of chips that actually do analog processing on them. And that's extremely exciting. I think it's, I think it's going to change the world the same way the microprocessor changed the world. We're sort of at the stage where, like we were when we had the first four-bit calculator you could buy and then suddenly you know somebody figured out how to play a game with it the whole thing happened so that's from the bottom up some of these chips are going to do very interesting things like voice recognition smell things like that of course the big driver you know sort of killer app is drones which is sort of the equivalent of the hydrogen bomb that's what's driving this stuff Mm -hmm. and self-driving cars and and cell phones and then from the top down is a whole other thing. That's the part where I think we're sort of missing something. That if you look at the sort of internet as a whole, or the whole computational ecosystem, particularly on the commercial side, enormous amount of the com- interesting computing we're doing now is back to analog computing, where we're computing with continuous functions. It's pulse frequency coded. Something like you know Facebook or YouTube doesn't care the you know the the file that somebody clicks on they don't care what the code is they just sort of care the meaning is in the frequency that it's connected to very much the same way a brain or a nervous system works so so if you look at these large companies facebook or google or something actually they're you know they're large analog computers the, the digital is not replaced but another layer is growing on top of it the same way that after world war ii we we had all these analog vacuum tubes and the, the oddballs like alan turing and von Neumann and even Norbert Wiener figured out how to use the analog components to build digital computers and that was the digital revolution but now we're, we're sort of in the right in the midst of a, another revolution where we are taking all this digital hardware and using it to build analog systems but somehow people don't don't want to talk about that analog is still sort of seen as this archaic thing and I believe differently. In what sense is an analog system supervening on the digital infrastructure are there other examples that can make it more vivid for people yes i mean analog is much better like nature uses analog for control systems so you could take an example like you know an obvious one would be google maps with with live traffic so you have all these cars driving around and with people have their digital cell phone in the car and you sort of have this deal with Google where Google will tell you what the traffic is doing and the optimum path if you tell Google how fast, where you are and how fast you're moving. And that becomes an analog computer, sort of an analog system where there is no, there is no digital model of the, you know, all the traffic in San Francisco. The, the actual system is its own it is its own model. That's and that's sort of that was sort of von Neumann's definition of a of an organism or a complex system that it constitutes its own simplest behavioral description. There is no 
trying to formally describe what's going on makes it more complicated, not less. There's no way to simplify that that whole system except except the system itself. Mm. And, and so you're using, you know, and Facebook's very much the same way. That you, it'd be impossible to build. You could build a digital model maybe of, you know, social life in a high school. But if you try to do s- social life in, in anything large, it becomes just collapses under its own complexity. So you just give everybody a copy of Facebook, which is a reasonably simple piece of code that lives on their mobile device, and suddenly you have a a full-scale model of the actual thing itself. So the social graph is the is the social graph, and that's that's what's a huge transition. We've sort of I think is at the root of, of some of the unease people f- are feeling about some of these, particularly companies, is that suddenly. You know, it used to be Google was some place where you would go to look something up, and now it really effectively is becoming what uh, what people think. And uh, with the, the big fear is that something like Facebook becomes what your friends are, and that, that can be good or bad. But it's a real, in a, in a just in an observational sense, it's something that's happening. Mm. So, what most concerns you about how technology is evolving at this point? Well, I, I wear different hats there, you know, and I mean, my other huge part, most of my life was spent as a boat builder, and I still, I'm right here in the middle of a, you know, kayak building workshop, mm-hmm. and, and want nothing to do with computer. I mean, that's really why I started studying them and writing about them, because I, I was not against them, but, but you know, quite suspicious. So, I, th- and that's, you know, the big thing about, about artificial intelligence, AI, it's not, it's not a threat, but the threat is that not that machines become more intelligent, but that people become less intelligent. So I've spent a lot of time out in the wild with you know no computers at all, lived in a treehouse for three years, and you can lose that sort of natural intelligence. I think as a species, reasonably quickly if we're not careful. So that that's what worries me. I mean, obviously the mach- machines are clearly taking over. There's no if you look at the just the span of my life from when von Neumann built that one computer to where we now, you know, almost biological growth of, of this technology. So as a, you know, sort of as a member of living things, it's, it's, it's something to be concerned about. Do you know uh, David Krakauer from the uh, Santa Fe Institute? Yes, I don't know him, but I've, you know, I've, I've met him and talked to him. Yeah, because he, he has a rap on this very point where he distinguishes between I think his phrasing is cognitively competitive and cognitively cooperative technology. So there are forms of technology that compete with our intelligence on some level, and insofar as we outsource our cognition to them, we get less and less competent. Uh, And then there are other forms of technology where we actually become better even in the absence of the technology. And so, unfortunately, the only example of the latter that I can remember is the one he used on the podcast was uh, the abacus, which apparently if you learn how to use an abacus well, you internalize it and you can do calculations you couldn't otherwise do in your head in the absence even of the the physical abacus. Whereas if you're relying on a pocket calculator or your phone or for arithmetic or you're, you're relying on GPS, you're eroding whatever ability you had in those areas. So if we get our act together and all of this begins to move in a better direction or something like an optimal direction, what, what does that look like to you? If I told you 50 years from now, we 
we arrived at something just far better than any of us were expecting with respect to this marriage of increasingly powerful technology with some regime that conserves our deepest values. How do you imagine that looking? Well, it's, yeah, it's certainly possible. And I guess that's where, where I would be slightly optimistic in that sort of, sort of my knowledge of human culture goes way back. And we, we grew up, we, you know, as a species, I'm speaking of, of just all humanity, most of our history was, you know, was among animals who were bigger and more powerful than we were and things that we completely didn't understand. And we sort of made up our, not religions, but just views of the world that, that, that we couldn't control everything. We had to, we had to live with it. And I think in a strange way, we're kind of returning to that, that childhood of the, the species in a way that we're, we're building these systems that we no longer have any control over. And we, in fact, no longer even have any real understanding of. So we're sort of in some ways back to that world that we that we are, you know, originally we're quite comfortable with where we're, where we're at the power of things that we don't understand. Sort of megafauna. And I think that's, that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. I, I don't know, but I'm, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. And I'm just personally, I'm interested. See, like if you take, you know, to get back why we're here, which is John's book. Almost everyone in that book is talking about domesticated artificial intelligence. I mean, they're talking about sort of commercial systems, products that you can buy, things like that. I'm just personally, I'm a, you know, I'm sort of a naturalist, and and I'm interested in wild AI. That you know, what what evolves completely in the wild, out of out of human control completely, and that's a very interesting part of the whole sphere that you know that doesn't doesn't get looked at that much. It's sort of the focus now is so much on you know marketable captive ai self-driving cars things like that that, that uh, but it's the wild stuff that that to me that's like i'm not i'm not afraid of bad ai but i'm afraid i'm very afraid of good ai the, the kind of ai where some ethics board decides what's good and what's bad i don't, I don't think that's what's going to be really important but don't you see the possibility that so what we're talking about here is powerful increasingly powerful AI, so increasingly competent AI. But those of us who are worried about the prospect of building what's now called AGI, artificial general intelligence, that is that proves bad is is just based on the assumption that there are there are many more ways to build AGI that is not ultimately aligned with our interests than there are ways to build it perfectly aligned with our interests. Which is to say we could build the the megafauna that tramples us perhaps more easily than we could build the megafauna that lives side by side with us in a durably benign way. You don't share that concern? No, I think that's extremely foolish and misguided to think that we can, I mean, it's sort of by definition, real AI you won't have any control over. I mean, it, it, this sort of idea that, oh, we, we, some out that's again why I think there's this enormous mistake that thinking it's all based on algorithms. I mean, real AI won't be based on algorithms, and, and so there's this misconception that happened, you know, back to when when they built those first computers that they needed programmers to run. So this view is that well, the programmers are in control, but if you have 
non-algorithmic. There is there is no program. There's no there's by definition you don't control it, and to expect control is is absolutely foolish. But I think it's much better to be realistic and, and assume that you you won't won't have control. Well, so then why isn't your bias here one of the true counsel of fear, which says we shouldn't be building machines more powerful than we are? Well, we probably shouldn't, but we are. I mean, the reality, the fact is, we we're, we've done it. I mean, it's not something that we're thinking about. It's something we've been doing for for a long time, and it's probably not going to stop. And then then the point is to be realistic about, and then and maybe optimistic that you know humans have not been the best at controlling the world, and and uh, something else could well be could well be better. But but this illusion that we are going to program artificial intelligence is, is, I think, provably wrong. I mean, you could, Alan Turing would have proved that wrong. You can, you know, he, that was how he got into the whole thing at the beginning was, was proving this, this statement called the Entscheidungsproblem, whether by, you know, is there any systematic way to look at a string of code and, and predict what it's going to do? You can't. And well, it baffles me that people don't sort of, somehow we've been so brainwashed by this. This is the digital revolution was so successful. Nobody, you know, it's amazing how it has sort of clouded everyone's thinking. They don't think of now. If you talk to biologists, of course, they they know that very well. I mean, people who actually work with brains of frogs or mice, you know, they know it's not digital. Why why people think more intelligent things would be digital is just is, again, it's sort of baffling. How did how did that sort of take over the world? That that thought. Yeah. Well, so it does seem though that. If you think the development of truly intelligent machines is synonymous with machines that not only can we not control, but we, on some level, can't form a reasonable expectation of what they will be inclined to do, there's the assumption that there's some way to launch this process that is either provably benign in advance or so I'm looking at the book now, and you know the person there who I think has thought the most about this is Stuart Russell, and you know he's he's just trying to think of a a way in which AI can be developed where its master value is to continually understand in a deeper and more accurate way what we want, right? So and what we want can obviously change, and it can change in dialogue with this now super intelligent machine, but its value system is in some way durably anchored to our own, because its concern is to get our situation the way we want it. Right, but all, all the most terrible things that have ever happened in the world happened because somebody wanted them. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's no, there's no safety in that. I, mean, I admire Stuart Russell, but we disagree on this sort of provably good AI. Yeah, so I, so, but I guess at least... What you're doing there is collapsing it down to one fear rather than the other. I mean, the, the, the fear that provably benign AI or provably obedient AI could be used by bad people toward bad ends, that's obviously a, a fear. But the greater fear that many of us worry about is that developing AGI in the first place can't be provably benign, and it, we will find ourselves in relationship to something far more powerful than ourselves that doesn't really care about our well-being in the end. 
Right. And that's, again, sort of the world we used to live in. And we, I think we can make ourselves reasonably comfortable there, but we, we no longer become the, you know, sort of the, the classic religious view was there, there are humans and there's God and there's only nothing but angels in between. That can change. Nothing but angels and devils in between now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, Norbert Wiener sort of, the last thing he published before, well, it was actually published after he died, but I mean, there's a line in there, which I think just gets it right, that the, the world of the future will be an ever more demanding struggle against the limitations of our own intelligence, not a comfortable hammock in which we can lie down to be waited upon by our robot slaves. And that's, those are the two two sort of paths that, that, that so many people want. So, oh, the cars are going to drive us around and be our slaves. It's, it's, it's probably not going to happen that way. On that dire note. It's not a dire note. I mean, it could be, it could be a good thing. We've, we've been the sort of chief species for a long time, and it, it, it could be time for something else. But, but at least be, be realistic about it. Don't, don't have this sort of childish view that, that, that everything's going to be obedient to us. That, that hasn't worked, and I, th I think it was... You know, it did a lot of harm to the world that, that, that sort of we had that view. But again, one of the signs of, of any real artificial intelligence would immediately be intelligent enough not to reveal its existence to us. I mean, that would be the first smart thing it would do, would be not, not reveal itself. So the fact that, that AI has not revealed itself is, to me, is no, that, that's zero evidence that it doesn't exist. I mean, if the, I would take it the other way, that if it, if it if it existed, I would expect it not to reveal itself. Unless it's so much more powerful than we are that it, that it, that it perceives no cost and re it reveals itself by merely steamrolling over us. Well, there would be a cost. I think it's sort of, sort of, sort of faith is better than proof. So, so anyway, you can see where I'm going with that, but it's, it's not necessarily a, a malevolent. It's just as likely to be bene you know, benevolent as malevolent. Okay, so I have a few bonus questions for you, George. These, these can be sure. short form. If you had one piece of advice for someone who wants to succeed in your field, and you can describe that field however you like, what would it be? Okay, well, I'm a historian. It's what I became, or, or a, and a boat builder. And so the advice in all those fields is just specialize. I mean, find something and become obsessed with it. I became obsessed with it kayaks that the Russians adopted when they came to Alaska, and then I became obsessed with, with how computing really happened. And, and if you are obsessed with one little thing like that, you immediately become, you know, you can very quickly know more than anybody else, and, and that's a, that helps to be successful. What, if anything, do you wish you'd done differently in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? Oh, that's, I mean, you can't, you can't replay that. That tape, I wish, well, I can be very clear about that. I wish in my 20s I had gone to the Aleutian Islands earlier while, while more of the old-time kayak builders were still alive and, and kind of interviewed and learned from them. And then very much the same in my 30s. I mean, all these projects, I, met, I, I did go find the surviving Project Orion people and technicians and physicists and interviewed them but i should have done that earlier mm. and the same with computing you know in my 40s i could have interviewed a lot more people who really were there at that important time i sort of caught them but almost too late and i wish i had done that sooner mm. 10 years from now what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life 
probably regret not, you know, not getting out more up the coast again, which is what I'm trying to do. It's what I'm working very diligently at, but, but I keep getting distracted. Yeah. So. Yeah, you got to get off the podcast and get in, into the kayak. Yeah, well, podcast, you know, we could be doing this from uh, Orca Lab. They have a good internet connection. Uh-huh. I mean, that's, that's the beautiful thing is that you can do this. And, and I, I, the other thing I would say is, this is a side, but I grew up, you know, I grew up as a, since a young teenager in Canada where the country was united by radio. I mean, in Canada, people didn't get newspapers, but everybody listened to one radio channel. And so in a way, podcasts are, are sort of, again, back to that past where we're all listening to the radio again. And I think it's a great mm. thing. What negative experience, one you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? I very nearly choked to death. I mean, literally, mm. that's the only time I've had a, a true near-death experience, seeing the tunnel of light wow. and reliving my whole life and not only thinking about my daughter and other profound things, but thinking how stupid this was. You know, this guy who had like, kayaked to Alaska th- six times with no life jacket dies in a restaurant on Columbus Avenue in New York. Wow. And John, John Brockman saved my life, ran out and came back with a New York City off-duty fireman who, you know, who literally saved my life. Wow. I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question. I had no idea of that, of that story. It's so, amazing. yeah, learn, learn the Heimlich maneuver. Dr. Heimlich really did, did something great for the world. Fascinating. We may have touched this in a way, but maybe there's another side to this. What most worries you about our collective future? Uh, yeah, kind of what I said, that we lose our, we lose all these skills and intelligences that we've built up over such a long period of time. The ability to, you know, survive in the wilderness and, and un- understand animals and respect them. It's a, I think that's a very sad thing that we're losing that, and of course, and losing the, losing the wildlife itself. If you could solve just one mystery as a scientist or historian or journalist, however, however you want to come at it, what would it be? One mystery. Well, one of them would be the one we just talked about. You know, cetacean communication. What's really going on mm. with these whales communicating in the ocean? That's something I think we could solve, but we're not looking at it in the right way. If you could resurrect just one person from history and put them in our world today and give them the benefit of a modern education, who would you bring back? Probably areas that most people I'm interested in history sort of had extremely good education. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking about John von Neumann and Alan Turing. You're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and Leibniz. I mean, he was very well. Yeah. Lately, I, the character in my the project I've been working on lately was kind of awful, but fascinates me was Peter the Great. Hmm. He was so obsessed with science and things like that so i think to have brought him you know if he could come back and it might be a very dangerous thing but but he he sort of wanted to learn so much and was again preoccupied by by all these terrible things and disasters that were going on at the mm-hmm. time what what are you doing on peter the great i've been writing this very strange book where it kind of starts with him and leibniz they go to the hot springs together and they they, they basically stop drinking alcohol for a week and Leibniz convinces him, he wants him to support building digital computers, but he's not interested. But the, so the computer thing failed, but, but what Leibniz did convince him was to launch a voyage to America. So that's, where the, uh, that's how the Russians came to Alaska. It became the Bering-Chirikov voyage. But it all starts in this hot springs where they, 
you know, they they can't drink for mm-hmm. weeks, so they're just drinking mineral water and talking. There is a a great biography on Peter the Great, isn't there? Is there is there one that you re- you recommend? Several. I, I wouldn't know which one oh, to sure. recommend, but he's you know, again, he's left why he's Peter the Great because he's been well, yeah, well studied. His relationship with Leibniz fascinates me, and that that's not, you know, there's just a lot there we don't know, but it, it's kind of amazing how this this sort of obscure mathematician becomes becomes very close to this great, mm. you know, leader of a huge part of the world. Okay, last question, the Jurassic Park question. If we are ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? I would say yes, but this, you know, this comes up as a much more real question with the woolly mm-hmm. mammoth and these other animals, the, the stellar sea cow. There's another one we could maybe resurrect. So I'm, yeah, I've, I've had these arguments with, you know, with Stuart Brand and George Church, who are who are realistic about could we do it. So, so I, yeah, I would say yes. Don't expect it to work, but certainly right. worth trying. What are their biases? Do, do, do Stuart and and George say we should or shouldn't do this? Uh, well, yeah, if you haven't talked to them, you definitely, that would be a great program to, yeah. get, to, to go to that debate. Because, I mean, the question more is, can, if you can recreate the animal, does that recreate the species? One of the things they're working on is, I think, trying to build a park in, in Kamchatka or somewhere over there in Siberia so that if you did recreate the woolly mammoth, they would have an environment to go live in. So to me, that's actually the payoff, mm-hmm. the, the payoff to to creating, recreating the woolly mammoth is that would force us to create a better environment. Same as, you know, we should bring the, we did, I mean, buffalo are coming back and we should bring the antelope back. It's sort of the, the you know, American cattle industry that's sort of wrecked the, the great central heart of America that could easily come back into the grasslands it once was. Mm. Well, listen, George, it's been fascinating. Thank you for your, your contribution to this book and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And it's a very interesting book. There's short chapters, which just makes it makes it very easy. Yeah, it's a, for it's a it's a sign of the times, but a welcome one. I am here with Allison Gopnik. Allison, thank you for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. So uh, we are the the occasion of our conversation is the release of John Brockman's book, Possible Minds: Twenty Five Ways of Looking at AI. And uh, I'm sure that there'll there'll be other topics we might want to touch, but as this is our jumping off point, first, give me your background. How would you summarize your intellectual interests at this point? Well, I began my career as a philosopher, and I'm still half appointed in philosophy at Berkeley. But for 30 years or so, more than that, I guess now, I've been looking at young children's development and learning to really answer some of these big philosophical questions. Specifically, the thing that I'm most interested in is how do we come to have an accurate view of the world around us when the information we get from the world seems to be so concrete and particular and so detached from the reality of the world around us. And that's a problem that people in philosophy of science raise. It's a problem that people in machine learning raise. And I think it's a problem that you can explore particularly well by looking at young kids who, after all, are the people who we know in the universe who are best at solving that particular problem. And for the past 20 years or so, I've been doing that in the context of thinking about computational models of how that kind of uh, learning about the world is possible for anybody, whether it's a scientist or a, an artificial computer or a computational system or 
again, the best example we have, which is young children. Right. Well, you'll get into the difference between how children learn and how, how our machines do, or at least our current machines do. But just more, a little more on your background. So did you, you did your PhD in philosophy or in psychology? I actually did my, my first degree, my, my BA it's an, uh, in honors philosophy. And then mm. I went to Oxford to actually wanting to do both philosophy and psychology. Um, I worked with Jerome Bruner in psychology, and I spent a lot of time with the people in philosophy. And my joke about this is that after uh, a year or two in Oxford, I realized that there was one of two communities that I could spend the rest of my life with. One community was of completely disinterested seekers after truth who wanted to find out about the way the world really was more than anything else. And the other community was somewhat spoiled, narcissistic, egocentric creatures who needed to be taken care of by women all the time. And since the first community was the babies and the second community was the philosophers, I right. thought it would be, I'd be better off spending the rest of my life. Uh, hanging out with the babies. Right. That's a little right. unfair to the philosophers, but but it does make the general point, which is that I think I think a lot of these big philosophical questions can be really well answered by by looking at a very neglected group in some ways, namely babies and young children. Yeah. Yeah. So I did my PhD in uh, in in the end in experimental psychology with Jerome Bruner, and then I was in Toronto for a little while, and then came to Berkeley, where, as I say, I'm in the psychology department, but also affiliated in philosophy. And I've done a lot of collaborations with people doing computational modeling at the same time. So I really think of myself as being a cognitive scientist in the sense that cognitive science puts together ideas about computation, ideas about psychology, and ideas about philosophy. Yeah, well, if, if you're familiar with me at all, you, you'll understand that I don't respect the boundaries between these disciplines really at all. I just think, I think that it's just interesting how someone comes to a specific question, but you know whether you're doing cognitive science or neuroscience or psychology or philosophy of mind, this can change from sentence to sentence, or it just really depends on what building in a university campus you're yeah. uh, you're standing in. Well, I think I've tried, you know, I, I've tried, and I think to some extent succeeded in actually doing that in my entire career. So I publish in philosophy books and collaborate with philosophers. I had a a wonderful project where we had half philosophers who were looking at causality, people like Pat Gleamore and James Woodward and Chris Hitchcock, and then half developmental psychologists and computational cognitive scientists. So, so people, like, uh, people like me, like Josh Tenenbaum at MIT, like Tom Griffiths. And we, that was an incredibly powerful and successful interaction. And, yeah. I, and the truth is, I think one of my side interests is is David Hume. And if you look at people like David Hume or Barclay or Descartes or the great philosophers of the past, they certainly wouldn't have seen boundaries between the philosophy that they were doing and psychology and empirical science. Let's start with the, the AI question and then get into children and um, other areas of common interest. So you, perhaps you want to summarize your how, how you contributed to this volume and, and the, your angle of attack on this um, really resurgent interest in artificial intelligence. It was this period where it kind of all went to sleep. And I remember being blindsided by it, just thinking, well, AI hadn't really panned out. And then all of a sudden, AI was everywhere. How have you come to this question? Well, as I say, we've been doing work looking at computational modeling and cognitive science for a long time. And I think that's right. For a long time, 
even though there was really interesting theoretical work going on about how we could represent the kinds of knowledge that we have as human beings computationally, it didn't translate very well into, you know, actual systems that could actually go out and do things more effectively. And then what happened, interestingly, in this new AI spring wasn't really that there was some great new, you know, killer app, new idea about how the mind worked. Instead, what happened was that some ideas that had been around for a long time, since the 80s, basically, these ideas about neural networks, and in some ways, you know, much older ideas about associative networks, for example. Suddenly, when you had a whole lot of data, the way you do with the internet, and when you also had a whole lot of compute power with good old Moore's law running through its, running through its cycles, those ideas became very practical so that you could actually take a giant data set of all the images that had been put on the net, for example, and, and train that data set to discriminate between images. Or you could take the giant data sets of all the translations of French and English on the net, and you could use that to actually design a translation program. Or you could have something like Alpha, something like Alpha Zero that could just play millions and millions and millions of games of chess against itself, and then you could use that data set to, to um, figure out how to play chess. Mm. So the real change was not so much a kind of conceptual change about how we thought about the mind. It was this change in the capacities of computers. And I think to the surprise of everybody, including the people who were, you know, including the people who had designed the systems in the first place, it turned out that those ideas really could scale. And the big problem in, with computational cognitive science has always been not so much that finding good computational models for the mind, although that's a problem, but finding ones that could do more than just solve toy problems, ones that could deal with the, the complexity of real world kinds of knowledge. And I think, I think it was surprising and kind of wonderful that these learning systems could actually turn out to, could actually turn out to work at a, at a broad scale. And the other thing that, of course, was interesting was that in, not just in the history of AI, but in the history of philosophy, there's been this constant kind of ping-ponging back and forth between two ways to solve this big problem of knowledge, this big problem of how we can ever understand the world around us. And a way I like to put it is, here's the problem. We seem to have all this abstract, very structured knowledge of the world around us. We seem to know a lot about the world, and we can use that knowledge to make predictions and change the world. And yet it looks as if all that reaches us from the world are these patterns of photons at the back of our eyes and disturbances of air at our ears. And the question is always, how could you, how could you resolve that conundrum? And one way, going back to Plato and Aristotle, has been to say, well, it, a whole lot of it is built in in the first place. We don't actually have to learn that abstract structure. It's just there. Maybe it evolved. Maybe if you're Plato, it was in a, a past life. And then the other approach, going all the way back to Aristotle, has been to say, well, if you just have enough data, if you just had enough stuff to learn, then you could develop this kind of abstract knowledge of the world. And again, going back to Plato and Aristotle, we kind of ping-ponged back and forth between those two approaches to trying to solve the problem. And sort of good old-fashioned AI said, well, if we just, you know, famously, uh, uh, Roger Shank said, well, if we just had like a summer's worth of interns. We'll figure out all of our knowledge about the world. Mm -hmm. We'll write it all down and we'll program it into a computer. And that turned out not to be a very successful project. And then the alternative, the kind of neural net idea was, well, if we just have enough data and we have some learning mechanisms, then 
the learning mechanisms will just be able to pull out the information from the data. And that's kind of where we are now. That that's the latest, that's the latest iteration in this back and forth between having building in knowledge and and learning the knowledge from the data. Yeah. So what you've done there is you've sketched two different approaches to generating intelligence. One, I guess, could be considered top-down and the other bottom-up. And what AI has done that of late, the great gains we see in image recognition and many other things, is born of a process that really is aptly described as bottom-up, where you take in an immense amount of data and do what is essentially a statistical pattern recognition on it. And some of this can be entirely blind and black boxed such that the humans who have written these programs don't even necessarily know how the machines are doing it. And yet, given enough processing power and enough data, we're now getting results that are human level and beyond for specific tasks. But of course, you make this point in your piece that we know this is not how humans learn, that there is there's some structure undoubtedly given to us by evolution that allows us to generalize on the basis of comparatively small amounts of data. And so this, is, this makes what we do non-analogous to what our machines are doing. And I guess, I mean, now, we're, now both top-down and bottom-up approaches are being combined in AI. I guess I, one question I have for you is, is the difference between the way our machines learn and the way human brains learn just of temporary interest to us now? I mean, can you imagine us kind of blowing past this moment and building machines that we just, we know are developing their intelligence in a way that is totally unlike the way we do it biologically, and yet it is successful, it becomes successful on all fronts without our building any analogous process into them. And we just lose sight of the fact that it was ever interesting to compare the ways we do it. I mean, they, they, there's an effective way to do it in a brute force way, let's, let's say bottom up, on every front that will, will matter to us. Or, or do you think that there's some problems for which it will be impossible to generate you know, true artificial intelligence unless we have a deeper theory about how biological systems do it? Well, I think we already can see that. So one of the reasons, one of the interesting things is that there's this whole really striking revival of interest in AI, among people in AI, in cognitive development, for example. And it's because we're starting to come up against the limits of this kind of pattern of having uh, this technique of doing a lot of statistical inference from big data sets. So there are lots of examples, for instance, even if you're thinking about things like image recognition, where you know, if you have something that looks like a German shepherd, it'll recognize it as a German shepherd. But if you just have something that to a human just looks like a mass that has the same textural superficial features as the German shepherd, it will also recognize it as a German shepherd. Hmm. You know, if it sees a car that's suspended in the air and flooded, it will report this is a car parked by the side of the road and so forth. And there's, there's a zillion examples that are like that. In fact, there's a whole kind of area of these adversarial examples where you can show that the machine is not actually making the right decision. And it's because it's only paying attention to the sort of superficial features. And in particular, the machines are very bad at making generalizations. So even if you 
you know, taught Alpha, teach AlphaZero how to play chess. And then you said, all right, we're going to just change the rules a little bit. So now the rooks are going to, are going to be able to move diagonally and you're going to want to capture the queen instead of the king. That kind of difference, which for a human who had learned chess would be really easy to adjust to for uh, the more, more recent AI systems leads to this problem they call catastrophic forgetting, which is having to relearn everything all over again when you get right. a new data set. So in principle, of course, you know, there's no in principle reason why we couldn't have an intelligence that operated completely differently from the way that, that say, human children learn. But human children are a demonstration case of the capacities of an intelligence, presumably in some sense a computational intelligence, because that's the best way we have of understanding how human brains work. But that's the best example we have of a system that actually really works to be intelligent. And, and nothing that we have now is really even in the ballpark of being able to do the same kinds of things that those systems, that system can do. So in principle, it might be that we would figure out some totally different way of, of being intelligent. But at the moment, the best case we have is, you know, a four-year-old, uh, a four-year-old human child. And we're very, very, very far from being able to simulate that. You know, I think part of it is if, if people had just labeled the new techniques by saying statistical inference from large data sets, instead of calling it artificial intelligence, I think we would be having a very different kind of conversation, even though statistical inference from large data sets turns out to be a, an incredibly powerful tool, more powerful than we might have thought. We should remind people how alarmingly powerful it is in narrow cases. I mean, you take something like Alpha Zero, what happened there was fairly startling because you have a an algorithm that is fairly generic in that it you know can be taught to play both a game like Go and a game like chess and presumably other games as well. And, you know, we have this history of developing better and better chess engines. And finally, the human grandmaster ability was conquered. I forget when that was, 1997 or so, when um, Gary Kasparov lost famously. And Ever since, there's this, just been this incremental growth in the power of these machines. And what AlphaZero did was create a, again, a, a far more general algorithm, which over the course of four hours taught itself to be better than any chess engine ever. So, I mean, you're taking the totality of human knowledge about this 2,000-year-old game all of the engineering talent that went into making this better and better over decades. And here we found an algorithm which turned loose on the problem, beat every machine and every person in human history, essentially. When you extrapolate that kind of process to anything else we could conceivably care about, you know, the, the recognition of emotion in a human face and voice, say. Now, again, coming at this not in a AGI way where this is, you know, we've cracked the code of, you know, what intelligence is on some level and, and built it from the bottom up, but in, in a piecemeal way where we take the, you know, the hundred most interesting cognitive problems and find brute force methods to crack them. It's amazing to consider how quickly a solution can appear. And once it does, and this is the point I've always made about so-called human-level intelligence, for any ability that we actually do find a, an AI solution, even a narrow one in the case of you know, chess or arithmetic, once that solution is found, 
you're never talking about human-level intelligence. It's always superhuman. So the moment we get anything like a system that can behave or learn like a a four-year-old child, it won't be at at human level even for a second because you're you're not going to, you'd have to degrade all of its other abilities that you could cobble together to support it. You wouldn't make it worse than your iPhone as a calculator, right? So it's already going to be superhuman. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I think there's a there's a there's a question though about exactly what different kinds of problems require and how you solve those problems. And I think an idea that is is pretty clearly there in the computer science and neuroscience is that there's trade-offs between different kinds of properties of a solution that aren't just because we happen to be biological humans, but are built into the very nature of trying to solve the problem. And in some ways, the most striking thing about the progress of AI all through has been what people sometimes call Moravich's paradox, which is that actually the things that really impress us as humans are the things that we're not very good at, like doing arithmetic or, right. or playing chess. So I think of these sometimes as being uh, like the corridas of nerd machismo. So the things that you have to just be, have a particular kind of, kind of ability that most people don't have and then really train it up to do really well. It turns out those things are things that computers are good at doing. On the other hand, if you might, the uh, an example I give is my grandson, who's three, plays something that we call Addy Chess. His name is Atticus. So how do you play Addy Chess? Well, what, the way you play Addy Chess is you take all the pieces off the board, and then you throw them in the wastebasket. And then you pick them up out of the wastebasket, and you put them more or less in the same places they were in before. And then you take them all off and throw them in the wastebasket again. And it turns out that Addy Chess is actually a lot harder than Grandmaster Chess because right. Addy Chess means actually manipulating objects in the real physical world so that you have to figure wherever it is that that piece lands in the wastebasket, whatever orientation it is, I can t- pick it up and perform the motor actions that are necessary to get it on the board. And that turns out to be incredibly difficult. If you, you know, go and see any robotics lab, they have to put big walls around the robots to keep them from destroying each other, even trying to do incredibly simple tasks like picking up objects off of a tray. And there's another thing about Eddie Chess that makes it really different from what even very, very powerful, powerful artificial intelligence can do, which is, as you, as you said, what, you can, what these new systems can do is you can take what people sometimes call an objective function. You can say to them, look, this is what I want you to do. Given this set of input, I want you to produce this set of output. Given this set of moves, I want you to get the highest score, or I want you to win at this game. And if you specify that, it turns out that these neural net learning mechanisms are actually remarkably good at solving those problems without a lot of additional information, except just here's a million examples of the input, and here's a a million examples of the output. But of course, what human beings are doing all the time is going out and making their own objectives. They're going out and creating new objectives, creating new ideas, creating new goals, goals that are not the goals that anyone has created before, even if they might look kind of silly like playing at each other. And in some way that we really don't understand at all, there's some sense of a kind of progress in those goals that we're capable of setting ourselves goals that were better than the goals that we had before. But again, that's not even kind of in the ballpark. It's not like, oh, if we just made the machines more powerful, then they would be able to to do those things too. They would be able to go out and physically manipulate the world and they would be able to, and they would be able to set, set novel objectives. That's kind of not even in the same 
in the same category. And as I say, I think that an interesting idea is that there might really be trade-offs between some of the kinds of things that humans are really good at, like, for instance, taking very complicated high-dimensional spaces of solutions, having, having to think of an incredibly wide range of possibilities versus, say, being able to do something really quickly and efficiently when it's well-specified. And I think there's reasons to think those things, it might not, you know, you might think, well, okay, if you could do the thing that's really well-specified and just do that better and better, then you're going to be able to solve the, the more complicated problem and the less well-defined problem. And I think there's actually reasons to believe that that's not true, that there's real trade-offs between the kinds of things you need to do to solve those two kinds of problems. Yeah, well, so the, the paradox you point to is is interesting and is, is a key to how people's expectations will be violated when automation begins to replace human labor to a much greater degree than it, than it has. Because people tend to expect that you know, menial jobs will be automated first or you know, lower skilled, you know, lower, not, not you know, famously high cognition jobs will be the first to be automated away. But you know, as you point out, many of the things that we find it amazing that the human beings can do are easier to automate than the things that any or virtually any human being can do and you know which is to say it's it's easier to play grandmaster level chess than it is to walk across a room if you're a computer so you know your oncologist and your local mathematician are likely to lose their jobs to ai before your plumber will which is a harder task to move physically into a space and manipulate objects and make decisions across tasks of that sort. So it's um, it, there's a lot that's counterintuitive here. I guess my sense, however, is that, I mean, well, well one, you're not at all skeptical, are you, that intelligence is substrate independent, ultimately, that we could find some way of instantiating human-like intelligence in a non-biological system. Is there something potentially magical about having a computer made of meat from your point of view or not? Well, I think the answer is that we don't really know, right? So the, again, the one, we have a kind of, uh, you know, species of one or maybe species of a couple of examples of systems that can really do this. And the ones that we know about are indeed biological. Now, I think the most, it's rather striking and I think maybe not appreciated enough that this idea that really comes with with Turing, the idea of thinking about a human mind as being a computational, a computational system, that's just been an incredibly productive idea. That's ended up enabling us to make really, really good predictions about many, many, many things that human beings do. And we don't have another idea that's as good at making predictions or providing explanations for intelligence as that idea. Now, Again, maybe it'll turn out that there is something that we're missing that is that is contributing something important about biology. But I think at the moment, the kind of computational theory of the mind is the best, the best one that's on the table. It's the one that's been most successful just in empirical scientific terms. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when we're looking at young children, if we say, are they doing something like Bayesian inference of structured causal systems, that's a computational idea. We can actually say, okay, well, if they're doing that, then if we give them this kind of problem, they should solve it this way. And sure enough, it turns out that over and over again, that's what they do, kind of independently of knowing very much about what exactly is going on in their brains when they're doing that. So 
again, it could be that this gap between the kinds of problems that we can solve computationally now and, and the kinds of problems that every four-year-old are solving, it could be that that's got something to do with having a biological substrate. But I don't think that's kind of the most likely hypothesis given the information that we have now. I think actually one of the interesting things is the problem is not so much trying to figure out what our representations and rules are, what's going on in our head, what the computations look like. The problem is, is what people in computer science call a search problem. So the problem is really, given all the possible things we could believe about the world, or given all the possible solutions we could have to a problem, or given all the possible things that we could do in the world, how is it that we end up converging? How is it that we end up picking ones that are, as it were, the right ones rather than all the other ones that we could consider? And that, I think that's, at the moment, that's the really, that's the really deep, serious problem. So we kind of know how a co computational system could be instantiated in, in a brain. We have ideas about how neurons could be configured so they could do computations. We kind of figured that part out. But the part about how we, how we take all these possibilities and end up narrowing in on ones that are relatively good, relatively true, relatively effective, I think that's a really, that's the really next deep problem. And, and looking at kids can help us to think about looking at how kids solve that problem. We know that they do solve it, could help to, help to let us make progress. Another name for this is common sense. What computers are, are famously bad at is, as you say, narrowing the search space of solutions to rule out the obviously ridiculous and detrimental ones, right? So you, I mean, this is where, this is where all the cartoons of AI apocalypse come in. The idea that, you know, you're, you're going to design a computer to remove the possibility of spam. And, you know, an easy way to do that is just kill all the people who would send spam, right? So this is obviously, this is nobody's actual fear. It just points out that unless you build the common sense into these machines, they're not going to have it necessarily for free the more and more competent they get at solving specific problems. But see, it's, it's, in a way, it's even worse than that because, you know, one thing is, one thing you might say is, well, okay, you know, we have some idea about what our everyday common sense is, is like, you know, we have these principles. So if we could just sort of specify those things enough so we could take our our everyday ideas about the mind, for example, or our everyday ideas about how the physical world works, and we could build those into the computer, that would help. And, and it is true that the systems that we have now don't even have that. But the interesting thing about people is that we can actually discover new kinds of common sense. So yeah. we can actually go out in the world and say, you know, that thing that we thought about how the physical world worked, it's not true, actually. We can have action at a distance, or even worse, you know, turns out that actually space and time can be translated into one another, which is certainly not anything that anyone intuitively thinks about how, how physics works. Or for that matter, we can say, you know, that, that thing that we thought that we knew about morality, it, that it turns out that no, actually, when we think about it more carefully, something like gay marriage is not something that should be perceived as being immoral. Um, even though lots and lots of people for a long time had thought that that was true. So we have this ability to go out into the world and both see the world in new ways and actually change the world, invent new environments, invent new niches, invent new worlds, and then figure out how to thrive in those new worlds and 
look around the space of possibilities and create yet other worlds and repeat. So even if we could build in sort of what in 2019 is everybody's understanding about the world or build in the understandings about the world that we had in the Pleistocene, that still wouldn't, wouldn't capture this ability that we have to, to search the space, to consider new possibilities, to think about new things that aren't there. And, you know, let me give you some examples. For instance, the sort of things that people are concerned about, I think legitimately concerned about that AI could potentially do is, for example, you could give the kind of systems that we have now examples of all of the verdicts of guilty and innocent that had gone on in a court over a long period of time, and then get it to give it a new example and say, okay, how would this, how would this case be judged? Will it be judged innocent or will it, will it be judged guilty? And the systems that we have now could probably do a pretty decent job of, of doing that. And certainly, you know, changes to those systems could, you could, it's easy to imagine an extension of the systems we have now that could solve that kind of problem. But of course, what we can do is to say, you know what, all that law that's really not right. That isn't really capturing what we want. That's not enabling people to thrive. Now we should think of a different way of thinking about making these kinds of judgments. And, and that's exactly the sort of thing that, that the current systems, again, it's not just like if you gave them more data, they would be able to do that. They're not really even conceptually in the ballpark of being able to do that. And that's yeah. probably a good thing. Now, I, you know, I think it's important to say that, and I think you're going to talk to Stuart Russell who will make this point, you know, these systems don't have to have anything like human level general intelligence to be really dangerous. Electricity yeah. is really dangerous. I just heard a, was talking to someone who made a really interesting point, which is about like, how did we invent circuit breakers? And it turns out the insurance companies actually started insisting that people have circuit breakers on their electrical systems because houses were being set on fire. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, electricity, which we now think of as being this completely benign thing, we put on a switch and electricity comes out and none of us is sitting there thinking, oh my God, our, is our house about to burn down? That was only a very long, complicated process of regulation and legislation and work to get that to be other than a really, really dangerous thing. And I think that's absolutely true, not about, you know, some theoretical artificial general intelligence, but about the, the AI that we have now, that it's a really powerful force. And like any powerful technology, we have to figure out ways of regulating it and having it make sense. But I don't think that's like a giant difference in kind from all the issues we've had about dealing with powerful technologies in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess this issue of creativity and you know, growth in intuitions is, is something, I guess my intuitions divide from many people's on this point because it Creativity is often held out as something that's fundamentally different. That our you know our machines can't do this, and we routinely do this. But in my view, creativity is isn't especially creative in the sense that it clearly proceeds on the basis of rules we already have, and nothing is fundamentally new, you know, down to the the studs. Nothing that's meaningful is. I mean, you can you can create something that essentially looks like noise that is new. Something that strikes us as insightful, meaningful, beautiful is functioning on the basis of properties that we that our minds already acknowledge as relevant and are already using. And so, we're, I mean, you take something like again, I mean, a simple case of a you know a mathematical intuition that you know 
was fairly hard won and took you know thousands of years to emerge in someone's mind. But you know, once you've got it, you sort of got it, and it's it's really the same thing you're you're doing anyway, which is you know you take a you know a triangle having 180 degrees, you know, on a flat plane, but you you know you curve the plane, and it can it can have more or less than that, and you know it's strange that it took so long to see that, but the scene of that doesn't strike me as fundamentally more mysterious than the fact that we can understand anything about triangles in the first place. I mean, I think I would just set that on its head in the sense that, you know, again, this is one of the real advantages of studying young children is that, you know, when you say, well, it's no more mysterious than understanding triangles in the first place, people have actually tried to figure out how is it that we can understand triangles? How is it that that children can understand basic things about how number works or in the work that I've done, how do children understand basic things about the causal structure of the world, for example? And it turns out that even very basic things that we take for granted, like uh, like understanding that you can believe something different from what I believe, for example, right. it's actually very hard to see exactly how it is that children are taking individual pieces and putting them together to putting them together to come to realizations about, say, how how other people's minds work. And and the problem is in sort of, you know, if you're doing it backwards, once you know what the answer is, then you can say, oh, I see, this is how you could put that together from, from pieces that you have in the world or from data that you have. But of course, if you're sort of doing it prospectively, then there's all sorts of, mil, you know, incredibly large number of different other ways that you could have put together, could have put together those pieces, or you could have, you could have interpreted the data. And the the puzzle is how how is it that you came upon the one that was both new and interesting and and wasn't just random now again i don't think there's any kind of you know giant reason why we couldn't solve that problem but i do think that's a looking at even something as simple as you know children figuring out basic things about how the world around them and the people around them work that turns out to be a very 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 tricky problem to solve and one interesting thing, for example, that we found in our data, in our research, is that in many respects, children are actually better at coming to unlikely or new solutions than adults are. So again, this is this kind of trade-off idea where actually the more you know, in some ways, the more difficult it is for you to conceive of something new. We use a lot of Bayesian ideas when we're trying to characterize what the children are doing. And one way you could think about it is that, you know, as your priors get to be more and more peaked as you know more and more, as you're more and more confident about certain kinds of knowledge. And that's a good thing, right? That's what lets you go out into the world and build things and make the world a better place. It gets to be harder and harder for you to conceive of, of new possibilities. And, and one idea that, that I've been arguing for is that you could think about the very fact of childhood as being a solution to this kind of explore-exploit tension, this tension between exploring, being able to explore lots of different possibilities, even if they're maybe not very good, and having to narrow in on the possibilities that are really relevant to, to a particular problem. And again, that's the, sort of, that's the sort of thing that people or humans over the course of their life history and, and culture seem to be pretty good at doing in a way that we don't really have a good, we don't even really have a good start on thinking about how a computational system could do that. Now we're working on it. I mean, you know, we're we're hoping that we could get a computational system that could do that and we have some sort of have some ideas. But that's a dimension that really really differentiates what the current 
powerful AI systems can do and what every four-year-old can do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm granting all of that. I guess I'm just putting the line at a different point because, again, people often hold out creativity and being able to form new goals and insights, intuitions, as though this were a uniquely human thing that was it's very difficult to understand how a machine could do. But you know, as you point out, just being able to walk across the room is is mm-hmm. f- fairly miraculous from the point of view of you know how hard it is to instantiate in a robot and to you know to ride a bicycle and to do things that kids routinely learn to do very early. My point is that once we crack that, these fairly basic problems that evolution has has solved for us and and really for even non-human animals in many cases, then we're talking about just incremental gains into something that is fundamentally beyond the human. I mean, because no one's putting the line at, nobody says, well, yes, you know, you can, you can, might be able to build a machine that could run across a room like a human child and, you know, balance, you know, something on its finger, but you're never going to get something that can produce the creative genius of an Olympic athlete or a professional basketball player. But I don't, I mean, that, that's where I think int- the intuitions flip. I mean, once you, once you could build something that could move exactly like a person, then there is no limit to, there's, there's no example of human agility that it is, will be out of sight at that point. And I think, I guess what I'm reacting to is that people seem to think different rules apply at the level of cognition and artistic creativity, say. Well, I think it's just an an interesting empirical question. You know, we're collaborating now on a big project with a bunch of people who are doing things in computer vision, for example. Mm. And that's another example where something that we think is very simple and straightforward, you know, I mean, we don't even feel as if we do any effort to go out into the world and actually see the objects are in, that are out there in the world. That turns out to be both extremely difficult and and in some ways very mysterious that we can do that as well as that we can do that as well as we can that yeah. not only do we identify images but we can recognize that you know there's an object that's closer to me or an object that's further away from me or that objects have texture or that objects are really three dimensional those are all really really challenging problems and an interesting thought is that at, at a very high abstract level it may be that we're solving some of those problems at this in the same way that enables us to solve some of these creativity problems. So let me give you an example. One of the things that the kids very characteristically do is do experiments, except that when they do experiments, we call it getting into everything. They mm-hmm. explore. They're not just sort of passively waiting for data to come to them. They can have a problem and actually go out and get the data that's relevant to that problem. Again, at, when they do that, we call it playing or getting into everything or making a mess. And we sit there and nod our heads and try and keep them from killing themselves when they're doing it. But that's a really powerful technique, a really powerful way of making progress, actually getting more information about what the structure of the world is like, and then using it to change what you think about the world, and then repeating by actually going out into the real world and getting data from the real world. And that's something that that kids are very good at doing. That seems to play a big role in our ability to do things like move around a world the world or do perform skilled actions. And again, that's something that at least at the moment isn't very characteristic of the way the machines work. Here's here's another nice example of something that we're actually working on at at Berkeley. So, one of the things that we know about kids is 
their motivation and affect is that they're, you know, insatiably curious. They just want to get as much information as they can about the world around them. And they're driven to go out and get information and, and especially get new information, which again is why just thinking about the way that we evolved isn't going to be enough to answer the, the problem. One of the things that's true about lots of creatures, but especially human children, is that they're curiosity driven. And uh, in work that we've been doing with computer scientists at Berkeley, you can design an algorithm that instead of, say, wanting to have a higher score, wants to have the predictions of its model be violated. So actually, when it has a model and things turn out to be wrong, instead of, instead of being depressed, it goes out and says, huh, that's interesting. Let me try that again. Let me see what's going on with that little toy car that it's doing that strange thing. And, and you can show that a system that's got that kind of motivation can solve problems that your typical, say, reinforcement learning system can't solve. And that what we're doing is actually comparing children and these curious AIs on the same problems to see the ways that the children are being curious and how that's related to the ways that the AIs are being curious. So I think you're absolutely right that the idea that the place where humans are going to turn out to be unique is in, you know, the great geniuses or the great the great artists or the great athletes, they're going to turn out to have some special sauce that the rest of us don't have. And that's going to be the thing that AI can't do. I think, I think you're right that that's not really going to be true, that what, what those people are doing is an extension of the things that every, every two and three-year-old is equipped to do. But I also think that what the two and three-year-olds are equipped to do is going to turn out to be very different from at least what the current batch of AI is capable of doing. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone is going to argue there. Well, so how do you think of consciousness in the context of this conversation? For, for me, I'll just give you my, my reasons for ignoring it thus far. So it, it seems to me at least possible that consciousness is distinct in that there's no amount of intelligence, intelligent-seeming behavior, you know, competence in any apparent act of cognition that guarantees the presence of consciousness. I mean, certainly not the way we're coming at solving these problems in AI, which is to say that we could one day build machines that pass the Turing test, but unless, unless we have some deep theory of how consciousness emerges in biological systems or in, or in any computational system, we won't know whether they're conscious. And, you know, we will undoubtedly build some of them to seem conscious. I mean, they'll seem to have emotions, they'll recognize our emotions. But for me, there's this, there's this uncanny possibility that we could build machines that pass a Turing test with flying colors, and we could lose sight of the fact that we never really understood consciousness at any point along the way, and we could, all of our intuitions that attribute consciousness to other systems will be played upon and will feel in relationship to other minds, and we may just actually lose sight of whether it's an interesting problem to consider whether they're conscious or not. Do your intuitions come along for the ride there, or do you have a different take on it? Well, I think that what will, again, you know, we have this kind of problem of having a, an N of one, and in the case of consciousness, really an N of one, right? Because the only person that we're absolutely sure has this feeling of what the world is like is, is, uh, is ourselves. Surely and, you're talking about me, not you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that N of one has all sorts of other characteristics. It's got a really complicated brain. It's got an evolutionary history of a particular kind. It's uh, capable of doing complicated kinds of computations. And 
we don't really have, you know, we don't can't really do the experiment of saying, okay, well, if we took out that piece, what would happen? You know, we can't sort of sit and operate on ourselves and figure out, okay, if I took away this capacity, would my experience, would my, would my consciousness appear or disappear aside from doing it in, in large scale by things like taking an anesthetic and seeing that it all goes away. My guess is that as we understand more about what the particular texture of phenomenology is like and how that's related to particular kinds of functions, particular kinds of computations or particular kinds of neurology, that that might be a root, that kind of answering the small c question of consciousness, like why is it that this looks red in this light but looks green in this other light? If we just did enough of that, we might very well end up with a scientific theory that would really be explanatory and tell us about consciousness. But I think the way we'll solve that problem is not by thinking that there's this big capital C consciousness problem and we'll find something that will explain why someone something is conscious or not conscious. I think what will be more interesting is to say, what, does, what are these specific relationships between specific kinds of of phenomenology, specific kinds of experience that we have, and specific kinds of computations and and, and neural systems. And again, this is just sheer faith that in the long run, if we do enough of that kind of specific work, we'll end up having a, an explanatory story. I think Patricia Churchland makes this analogy and other people do, which I think is a good one, that if you look at the history of our understanding of life, there was a time in the 19th century where we thought there was going to be this, there was this big, hard problem about where does life come from? And how could it possibly be that things that were non-living could end up giving rise to living things. And there were a lot of ideas like the élan vital, that there was some special substance in the world that led to life. And it turns out that the answer to that question was that it wasn't really the right question. It wasn't that, it's not that the answer was, oh, actually that's an illusion. There turns out there's nothing, there's no living things in the world. It's that what makes something a living thing is really complicated and related to non-living things in, in very non-obvious and complicated and not simple ways. And my my guess is that that's what the story is going to turn out to be for consciousness as well. But, and presumably once we have that explanatory story, we'll be able to say, oh yeah, if you're a system that has this kind of computation or this kind of brain, then you're going to have this kind of phenomenology. But I think we're very far from, from being there yet. Perhaps it won't surprise you as a, as a fan of the hard problem of consciousness. I've always felt that analogy isn't a good one because life is in fact defined by what systems do functionally and on the basis of their extrinsic properties. So you can talk about you know, whether it metabolizes or grows or heals or reproduces. These are all things that can be defined from the outside. And then once you get enough of these things together, then there is nothing left out of the explanation. And our intuitions really are finely conserved. I mean, we have some corner cases where it's, you know, it's hard to decide whether a virus is alive or not, say, in certain circumstances. But, but of course, that's speaking from the perspective of being on the other side of the conceptual understanding of life, right? So before you had that picture, and actually, this is another, this is another nice case where I think the children are, are illuminating. If you look at, if you look at kids' kind of everyday intuitions about how life works, their picture of how life works is not about function and metabolism. And I think for most of human history, people's picture of how life works was, was much more like our picture of how consciousness works. It was much more that there was something Some you know, spirit, added, yeah. spiritual, something extra. There was a chi or there was a, you know, a life force that was 
or energy that was really responsible for, for living things. So I think it is just very, I mean, I agree with you at the moment. My intuitions are also like, how could we get this perspectival idea from things that are, that don't have that in the first place? But it's just hard to know what things are going to look like from the other side of a, of a conceptual change or a scientific revolution. In defense of that point, which I'm, I, I still wouldn't concede, but it, it is interesting to, to notice how visceral these intuitions can be. So, for instance, most people think that when they look into somebody's eyes, they see this sort of the evidence of this inner glow coming from the eyes themselves. But it's really, I mean, the, the eyes themselves are not doing anything. And we're talking about the muscles around the eyes that are communicating the, fa the fact that this person is not a corpse. And that's very counterintuitive. But if you, if you pay attention, that's the eyeball is, itself is not the window to the soul. And as you know, I mean, I think there's a good argument to be made. Again, children are, children are, are uh, a good case of this, that the intuition about dualism is a very strong intuition. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the intuition that there's really something about our spirit or our soul that's really different from our bodies, that's, a, that's an intuition that people had for a really, have had for a really long time, and I think still have. It's still, it's still an intuition that's hard to that's hard to overturn or the intuition that we have a self, that we have this, you know, homunculus inside of our, our minds that's telling us what to do and is separate from our bodies and separate from all the selves of all the other people around us. That's a really strong intuition that seems to be really hard to overturn. But those are both examples. And I think you and I at least would agree about this. Those are both examples of intuitions that turn out just not to be right. Yeah. And I just don't know. I think, I think it's very hard, as I say, before you have the scientific revolution to know what the, what the picture is going to look like on the other side. I mean, we can certainly say some things about what kinds of features of human brains or human functioning are connected to what kinds of, what kinds of phenomenology and how changes to the brain can make changes to, that, to what that, those, the phenomenology and function is like. But I don't think we can do much more than that now. Yeah, I, I guess the reason why this seems like a a fundamentally different problem to me and to many people on this side of the conversation is that it seems impossible to imagine what the answer could be that would seem explanatory and not seem like a mere restatement of a miracle. And that's that's not the position one tends to be in, even on the the near side of some conceptual breakthrough. I mean, you can usually imagine. I mean, there, I'm sure there are cases where this breaks down as well, but you can usually imagine what sort of thing could be true that would make this not seem like a miracle. And yet, in this case, we seem to come up against just a, a total failure of intuition. Of I mean, it's for me, it's analogous to you know, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, so if you're going to say that we live in a universe where first there was nothing, you know, truly nothing, not even the laws of physics, and then all of a sudden something came into being, which explains everything else that came after it, it's that transition from zero to one that seems, I mean, we can assert it as a brute fact, that's fine, but it doesn't, it's not self-explaining. And we have a kind of, sort of a zero to one problem here with respect to phenomenology. I mean, once, once you turn the lights on at all by any increment, well, then I'm with you. Then, then they're all easy problems. Then deciding why w one red looks one way to you in one moment and another way in another moment, those become fairly straightforward problems of, of psychophysics, say. But 
it's that first increment of really just stepping out of the darkness that seems well, you know, hard to David David Chalmers has a really interesting an interesting recent paper and talk that's that's an interesting angle on this, which is what he calls the meta problem of consciousness. And the meta problem is why do we have such strong intuitions about that? I mean, I mm-hmm. have those intuitions too. Why do we have such strong intuitions that that, you know, nothing that counted would really count as an explanation? And I think that that might actually turn out to be a really good way of trying to solve the problem is to say, why is it that we do have this very strong sense that even if we gave the explanation, it wouldn't really count as being it wouldn't really count as being an explanation. Mm. And again, maybe the story will be the same as the something from nothing story or the uh, the quantum physics story or lots of other stories in science where the scientists end up turning to us and saying, you know what, you want more of an explanation? Here's the math. Here's the equations. That's what I got. And uh, if you're a scientific realist, this is telling you the truth about the world, uh, even if it doesn't have that kind of self-explanatory quality. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know about that paper. I'll check it out. Thanks for, for the reference. So I want to pivot now. I'm now mindful of your time and your level of expertise on other topics here. And so I just want to get your view of how to summarize it, maybe theory of mind and its emergence in childhood. I mean, what, what do we know about first? I mean, you've referenced it, I think. I don't think you've said the phrase theory of mind, but at various points we've been talking about it. Tell us what theory of mind is and what do we know about how it emerges and when it emerges in children? Right. So, you know, starting way back in the 80s, there were a group of us developmental. This is another nice example where it was really developmental psychologists and comparative psychologists and clinical psychologists and philosophers working together um, who started asking this question about how is it that we come to understand what's going on inside of the minds of other people? So if you, you know, look at the person next to you, they're really just a bag of skin with these little dots at the top that move back and forth and a hole underneath that opens and closes and make it, makes noise. But of course, that's nuts, right? We don't see that when we see another person. We see someone who has beliefs and desires and intentions and emotions. And, and as you said, we see that almost automatically coming out of their, uh, shining out of their eyes. And the idea that, that we started working on in the 80s was to think of this as being kind of like having a an intuitive theory and everyday idea about how minds worked and what minds were like and what was going on in the minds of other people. And it started this very productive research program of trying to figure out where does that come from? How do we, how do we develop it? What is it about other people that lets us understand what's going on in their minds? And as usual, the story seems to be that there's some structure that's in place from very early, probably innately, that makes human beings spe- special. There's pretty good evidence, I think, that there's innate neonatal imitation from the time babies are born. And to imitate, you already have to think of a link between what it feels like to be you inside and the pictures that you, the the expressions you see on the faces of others. But then there's also clearly a lot of learning and inference and induction that's going on. And my summary at the moment, now that at the moment, the empirical story is pretty complicated and it's connected to some of the replication issues. So There's some things Mm. that we're not sure about, but there are things that I think we have a pretty good handle on. So it's pretty clear that from about nine months or so, when they start actually going out and reaching for things, for example, themselves, children start understanding that other people have goals and intentions and are trying to make things happen in the world. Things like that, if you're trying to get to an object, you'll reach toward it. 
so this sort of basic understanding of agency and intention and goals, that seems to be in place pretty early in infancy. By the time children are toddlers, they pretty clearly can understand things about desires. We did some experiments that showed that at that point, children can understand that I might want something different from what you want. And then there seems to be this really interesting conceptual change between about three and five in terms of children's understanding of beliefs, understanding what other people think, and understanding that, for example, people could think something that actually isn't true. And we did experiments, and other people have done experiments that show this. But I think it's important. Sometimes people have acted as if, you know, being able to solve a particular task that we use to solve this, the false belief task, that that's what theory of mind is. And and nobody ever thought that. It's really a continuous process that that probably doesn't finish until the day that you die of trying to figure out what other people are like and why they do the things they do and how their how their minds work. But it's one that's particularly vivid and important for children between sort of the ages of birth and about five years of age. And how does the conception of other minds relate to the sense of self, do you think? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. When we started doing work on this in the, in the 80s and 90s, one of the things that sort of surprised us was that for a lot of these things, as soon as children had the idea that, say, you could have a false belief, they seem to understand it both for themselves and for other people. So if you don't understand that other people can believe something that isn't true, rather strikingly, you don't seem to be able to understand that for yourself either. Mm-hmm. And that's true pretty much on the whole continuum. What seems to happen is you're in parallel understanding things about how other people's minds work and how your minds work. So an idea that you might have had, going back to you know Descartes, that the way you understand the mind is you look into your own mind and you see how it works, and then you project that onto other people. That doesn't seem to be a good description of what's happening. Instead, what seems to be happening is that children are building these kind of everyday theories of how people work, and they use all kinds of data, data about what they see themselves doing or how they feel inside, and then data about what other people are doing. And they very quickly, almost automatically, assume that if this is the way that my mind works, then that's going to be the way your mind works, but also vice versa. If this is the way other people are functioning, then that's the way I people I must function as well. Yeah. Well, I've often thought that there's theory of mind, which really has focused on other people's propositional knowledge or, the, or their beliefs. The fact that somebody could have the same information I have or have the same expectations or have different ones, that seems as you point out, fairly slow to develop the idea that someone could have false beliefs. And yeah, do we still put that around four or so? Well, I mean, there's some controversy about it because there's some... Is there a replication issue on that one? No, there's no replication issue on that one at all. So that is completely, that's completely robust. The replication issue is that there's been examples of showing something that seems like it might be analogous in much younger children, in babies, for example. Mm. And then the question is, is it really analogous? So, you know, if a baby is expecting to see someone move in one direction or another, for example, is that really the same thing as the four-year-old who can tell you, oh, you know, he will think that there are smarties in the box, but really there are, really there are pencils in the box. And so one way that people have talked about this is, is there an implicit theory of mind that's available earlier and an explicit one later? But what is really clear is that there's something important that's changing between about four and about five. Mm -hmm. And that, 
you know, if you ask people for kids, for instance, to explain why someone does something, the explanations you'll get are really, really different across a wide range of dimensions at five than at four. And then there's this question about is, are these other things that you can see babies and children doing earlier, how do they fit into that, into that general picture? And that's still sort of up for grabs. Well, the, the connection between self and other that has always seemed fairly direct to me is what I've called in various places fundamental theory of mind, which, is, which has nothing to do really with beliefs or, or, or anyone's propositional attitudes, but more the sense that each of us can be aware that we are objects in the world for others. So it's a sense of being observed. I mean, it's, it's the difference between you know, somebody who's not looking at you and then suddenly they are looking at you. Whenever that becomes salient, where the fact that you now recognize that you're in relationship to another, you know, there, there's a rustle in the bushes and that signals the, the possibility of someone else being there. You're sort of cast back on yourself in relationship to whatever that thing is, you know, as opposed to it, it being a branch that just fell. Do we have any sense of when that emerges? I mean, it seems like, you know, a baby's fascination with a human face must be entangled mm -hmm. with that very, very early. Yeah. So I think, I think we have a lot of evidence that the sort of what, what Andrew Maltzoff, who's done a lot of this work, and I have called the like me hypothesis, the idea that there are creatures that are out there in the world and they are very, that are, that are agents, maybe humans, but that could include, you know, non-human animals as well. And that they're functioning in a way that's very much like the way that I function, that I can map back and forth between myself and that other person that I, and that's connected to emotional and even sort of, you know, moral things. Like I am connected to that other, that other human being. They have a, an inside the way that I do. That does seem to be in place very early. So by the time you're talking about even three-month-olds can do something that psychologists call uh, primary intersubjectivity, my favorite description for it is it's a kind of conversational dance. So by, by the time you have a three-month-old, they'll coordinate their body movements in a way that puts them in sync with the body movements of a caregiver, for example. And that's already involves a kind of connection or a kind of link, the idea that when you know, you smile, I should smile. And when you move your head in one direction, I should move my head in the other direction. That already implies a kind of recognition of the fact that people, not just that people are special, but that people are special in a way that maps onto the way that I'm special. I think that's actually in place from very early, from very early in infancy. Now, again, it's hard to tell with infants exactly, you know, what they're feeling or thinking when they're doing that, but certainly what they're, the way they're acting suggests that they're, there's this kind of special, empathic, you know, way I think of it is, you think about the old Martin Buber, I-thou versus I-you, that, sorry, I-thou versus I-it, that I-thou relationship seems to be in place from very strikingly early in infancy. Even before, you might be able to articulate, yeah, well, I am the kind of thing that has a particular kind of desire, and you have ones that might be the same or might be different, et cetera, et cetera. I think that basic link is there much earlier. Where does the ability to recognize yourself in a mirror fall in here? Yeah, so the, the empirical phenomenon is that you don't start doing that until about 18 months. So there's a pretty striking difference at about 18 months. If you mm. famously, the mirror test, you put a spot of rouge on a baby's face and they, when they start out, they just act as, and, look, and look at, have them look in a mirror and 
they're just kind of interested in the baby and the marriage to begin with. And then there's a really striking difference at about 18 months where they'll immediately put their hand on the spot of rouge and seem to recognize that this is something about them. Now, right. the puzzle is that's connected to other things like self-conscious emotions, like pride and embarrassment and shame. And that suggests that something important is happening. But it's not quite clear why, you know, our whole philosophical notion of having a self would be connected to, you know, whether we recognize ourselves in mirrors or not. And again, as in the case of theory of mind in general, it's probably not that there's one thing which is having an idea of the self. There's evidence that even much younger babies, for instance, recognize, can recognize when someone else is imitating them, for instance. And that kind of implies that you have a sense of self in the sense of what your own kinesthetic mm -hmm. body posture is, and that that's different from somebody else's. But that's different from the sense of self of, oh, okay, I recognize myself in a mirror, which again is different from the sense of self of, here's what someone else thinks about me. Here's what I think I'm like. Here's the, you know, I think I'm shy or I'm outgoing or I'm smart, that kind of sense of self. So I think, I think there's a, as always yeah. in development, there's a real, real, really different conceptions that somehow build on one another in a way that we don't completely understand. Yeah, I, mean, I would think the most rudimentary sense of self would be, again, this sense of being in relationship and potentially implicated in the awareness and behavior of others. So that, I mean, I would think that there's some rudimentary sense of self that a dog has the moment it notices you're looking at it, right? I mean, it's like it recognizes you as an agent and whatever that feeling is, I mean, it's not to say that a dog has any kind of concept of what's happening there, but the shift from, you know, the carefree attitude of being purely a subject, you know, if you're a dog, you know, smelling something and looking for food to suddenly recoiling upon yourself because now you have a, a locus of consciousness aimed at you, right? You suddenly see an, another animal or another or a person staring at you. That kind of freezing behavior, if that feels like anything, for me, that sort of contraction at the center of it all strikes me as this very rudimentary anchor to which we attach every other layer that we call ourselves. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think we have a lot of there's a lot of really beautiful evidence about babies interpreting agency in the on the part of others. I mm. it's it's an interesting question about whether these kind of very early eyeval links where say babies are engaged in a pretty complicated imitation behavior with other people from the time they're very little that seems to imply a kind of self. So for instance, there's a, a lovely set of studies that are kind of like, you know, the Marx Brothers routine where Groucho and Chico are on either side of a mirror and then the mirror breaks and then they're trying, Groucho, I guess, is trying to persuade Chico that the mirror is still there right. and they're imitating each other. You can do that with babies. And again, Andy Meltzoff has done that. And babies are very sensitive to that. And if, you know, you start imitating something that whatever they're doing, they'll do something like do something really weird, like wave their hand in a strange way to try and see, are you going to imitate that as well? And again, that already seems to involve a kind of sense of I'm a person who's doing something and here's another person who's looking at me and reacting to me in a, in a, a systematic way. Um, and that, that seems to be something that's in place very early. But I think it's a really good question about is our, the way of thinking about our link to other people that we kind of don't see boundaries between ourselves and others or that 
we see connection between a self that's separate from others and 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 others that we conceive of that we know are separate from ourselves. How would you relate this to other animals? Do you have intuitions about uh, consciousness and or a sense of self? Well, in terms of things like the Mark test, you know, it turns out that a lot of other primates will pass the Mark test and there's some debate, but it looks like there might even be, you know, uh, dolphins, and, dolphins, yeah. uh, dolphins might be, might be doing that as well. But as I say, I'm not sure the Mark test is really the right kind of test. Yeah. In terms of consciousness, there's a very, I don't know if you've talked to Peter Godfrey Smith. No. Um, he's a philosopher who has this fantastic, wonderful new book called Other Minds that's about cetaceans and about how could you tell whether an octopus, for example, had a mind or had consciousness or not. And, and Peter argues that there's something much more foundational about the change that happened when organisms started to have two things that came in parallel and that caused you know, an enormous explosion of new forms of life. And those two things were moving and seeing. So mm. being able to move, because when you moved, then you could see things that were new and being able to see so that you could know where you wanted to move suddenly you get, you know, an incredible explosion of organisms that can do both of those things and that, you know, succeed and, and take, over, take over the world to the point where it's kind of hard for us to imagine organisms that don't do those things. And, and Peter thinks that maybe the really kind of proto-consciousness comes from that combination of being able to perceive things in the world and make decisions and act on the basis of those decisions. And that seems like the most plausible story that I can think of, of, of what a sort of sensible idea of consciousness is about, because mm. that has some of that kind of perspectival quality of of seeing something from my point of view. Once you've got, say, a visual system that can that can actually run a, a motor system, but again, it's very hard to know how you test those kinds of things empirically. Yeah, well, that, that does push it very far down, though. You're talking about conscious flies in that case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I have to say, you know. Uh, I was talking to Christoph Koch about that. You know, you read the data about bumblebees. It's pretty hard when you see the kinds of things that bees can do in terms of planning and anticipation. It's pretty hard to say, yeah, I'm absolutely sure that because they're insects, they're not conscious in, in, a, way that, in a way that I think that other, other creatures are. So hmm. I, I wouldn't tend to subscribe to the kind of panpsychist view that conscious, everything is conscious to some degree. But I think maybe having read Peter's book, I think maybe this, this point of being able to sense and being able to move and being able to coordinate those two things together, which is, which is really far back, like beyond our common ancestor with the octopus, that, that, might be an interesting, that might be an interesting possibility. Well, it's been fascinating, Allison. Uh, before we close, is there anything uh, else you want to, to say and uh, tell people where they can most easily find you online? Yeah, so I'm at alisongopnik.com and and on the Berkeley website, and you can read my both my papers. And I do a lot of I do a lot of the sort of writing that you do, public intellectual writing as well. A lot of the ideas about consciousness and also about AI are in my second book, which is called The Philosophical Baby, which is written mm. for a, a broad general audience and is about how thinking about child development can can really be illuminating about can be illuminating illuminating about these questions. And I also write a column for the Wall Street Journal that, that you can look at that does these things on a kind of quicker, a quicker basis. And all of that is there on my, uh, all that is there on my, on my website. 
the AI part has really become a real interesting focus. Of, I have a piece in Scientific American maybe a year ago, two years ago, really trying to explain what's going on in these, in these systems. And one of the things that I find very frustrating and one of the things I like about the, the, the book, the, the Brockman book, is that the world at large, the journalistic world, for instance, really wants to have the conversation about are the robots all coming to kill us or are they going to be super intelligences? And I think for human beings, the idea of the boundary between the artificial and the human is always something that's fascinating. That's been fascinating since the medieval golem, long before we had industrialization, let alone had, had computers. And I get frustrated because I think a lot of the conversation is about these, you know, are, is the golem coming to get us or not? And I think we have a real task to really try to explain the science of here's actually what these systems are doing. Here's how they work. Here's the things they can do. Here's the things that they can't do. And that's what I tried to do in that, in that piece in Scientific American. And I, I think it, will be, it would be good if more of the conversation was about here's, what the, here's the way these systems really work and here's what they can do. And they're really powerful technologies, and we have to think about the public policy implications of them, but kind of got out of this kind of metaphysical anxiety about having creatures that are, that are intelligent and, and yet seem kind of like us and kind of not like us. That's obviously a necessary distinction to, to make, that, but it, that, for me, references the time horizon in a way that doesn't necessarily seem relevant because I mean because we, we don't know how far we are away I mean to say that we are not there yet we also just we don't know how quickly those developments could come and we don't know how long it would take for us to prepare for them adequately mm-hmm. and so we, we we are living in a world where we could rather suddenly find ourselves in relationship to something far more competent than we are in an entirely global sense, but it wouldn't even have to be global to be threatening. Yeah. I guess before I let you go, now that I'm, I almost said goodbye, I want to steal you back for a second. Are you skeptical that the so-called alignment problem or, or control problem is really worth thinking about in the way that someone like Stuart, who, I'll, as you say, I'll have on as well, is? You think that's a, it's a kind of a red herring and we shouldn't be burning too much fuel worrying about it? Well, I think it, no, I mean, I think it's a perfectly good problem. It's a, this problem about, you know, the way that these systems work is, as I say, we can give them an objective function and they can accomplish it. And I think it is a really important question about what kinds of objectives are, what kind of objective functions are they going to try and maximize and what will happen as a result of that. So again, that's one of the, you know, real characteristics of this powerful new technology that we want to think about. So we definitely want to think twice about attaching these things to uh, weapons, for example, or attaching these things to machines that can actually go out and do things in the world. Um, And we need a big regulatory framework to try Mm. and do that. And I think it's wonderful that Stuart is trying to do that. On the other hand, I have to say that as I think this may be partly the experience of motherhood, you know, one of the things about being a mother is that you learn to ration your worries because there's an infinite number of things that you can worry about. So you should really worry about the ones that are that are the crucial things to worry about, not all the other terrible things that could happen. And I sort of feel like right now we could be worrying about climate change 24-7 at maximum worry volume, and we still wouldn't be worried enough. So if it's sort of a choice between- It's a triage problem. uh, Yeah, between the existential risk of 
the planet's going to fall apart in in 20 years versus at some point that we don't know about, there'll be AI that will have the will be general AI and we'll have to worry about it. Like, I think the I think the science is telling us this is the problem that's really out there as the big existential risk that we have to we have to worry about now, which, again, doesn't mean that especially for people who are working in AI, we shouldn't be trying to make it work as well as we possibly can. And that's what Stuart and an increasing number of people in the field are doing. You know, I, I had a thought, there's a kind of interesting analogy, which is if you think about nuclear uh, weapons, for example, right? I mean, there's another technology that's still out there that could be existentially destructive. And I think it's kind of encouraging that the very scientists who were doing that work, like Robert Oppenheimer, were exactly the people who very rapidly said, no, here's what we have to do to, to try to keep these weapons in check. And I think you're seeing that in the AI world as well. So people like Stewart or like Fei-Fei Li at, at Stanford very quickly have recognized, here's what some of the dangers are. And it's really important to have the project of trying to keep those dangers in control, even if they're not the, at the same kind of existential level as something like climate change is now. Yeah. Although, unfortunately, Stuart seems surrounded by uh, a dozen or a dozen dozen Edward Tellers at the moment. So we're at a different moment in, in mm-hmm. our ethical concern about where the technology could go, I think. But I mean, things have been changing very quickly as well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, Allison, it's been fascinating, and I really appreciate your time, and I will um, link to your uh, relevant spots where I embed this on my blog, and um, I wish you the best of luck understanding our kids, because I have two of them, and, and it's, a, it's a hard job. Yeah. It's, it's, on the other hand, the other nice thing about it is it's so much more fun than just about anything yes, else that you could no do. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a definite, definite plus to... Uh, being a developmental cognitive scientist, just sitting in wa- and I have to say, after having done this for 35 years, every day I look at my grandchildren now, I say, what on earth was that about? Where did that come from? That's not something I would ever have anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Well, thanks again, Allison. Be in touch. I'll, uh, I'll see you at a conference one of these days. Okay, great. Yeah. Good to talk to you soon. Yeah. I'm here with Stuart Russell. Stuart, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Nice to be back. So uh, the occasion of this conversation is John Brockman's new book, Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. And I have, I've spoken with George Dyson and Alison Gopnik as well. And there are several other people in the book who I've spoken with on the podcast at various times. Honestly, Stuart, you're, you're the only person who I... Uh, who truly has my proxy on this topic, where I find that I agree with every word that comes out of your mouth on it. And I, I, I really... <laughs> so, why are we having this conversation? Yeah, well, no, because I, 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 I need an ally. I mean, it, the, the thing that is, is so bewildering, I mean, so I, I have a very good sense of what it must be like to be you in many of these conversations, because, you know, I, I go out into the world and argue with people who, who think we shouldn't be worrying about all this, and all this, as uh, our listeners will now know, is the prospect of building superintelligent AI that is not perfectly aligned with human interests. And it's just, a, it's a bewildering experience, because the, the situation I find myself in again and again is being faced with obviously very intelligent people, and people who are close to the field, at least if you read their 
biographies, you, you would never doubt that they were. And yet, it is a spectacle of, of very smart people either making terrible arguments or not even making an effort to make an argument at all. And they're satisfied that they have closed the door to all of these concerns. And so I, it really is an experience. Uh, I mean, I, I've had this on other topics as well, but there's something bewildering about this. And yeah. um, I just, I, you know, so I, I, I go to you for a, a sanity check more than anything. <laughs> well, I think I can only put it down to a kind of self-defense mechanism that if you tell people, okay, the thing that you're working on might be the end of your own species, then people are going to react in a defensive way. And they'll come up with the the first argument that pops into their head that if it were accepted, would you know, would refute it. And um, except these are people, these are people often who are not even working on it. I mean, so, you know, like, you know, Rodney Brooks, you know, who's really the arch skeptic who I haven't had on the podcast, but I debated him at a, I debated him at an Amazon conference mm -hmm. about a year ago. And what was crazy about that experience was that, you know, not only did he feel he was making sense, but the audience of largely Amazon employees thought it was like a religious revival. I mean, I had the sense that I was talking, you know, I was arguing against Scientology at the Scientology Center. So, it well, was, and, you know, and I think there there are those who, for example, Robert Atkinson, who's the director of the Information Technology Innovation Foundation. You know, there are people who just view this in a tribal sense that we. We are the, the technologists, and, and anyone who points to negative consequences or downsides or risks is a Luddite, and you see that over and over again. And you know, so I guess that makes Bill Gates a Luddite and Elon Musk, Elon Musk a Luddite and you know, even Alan Turing a Luddite. So, so something is clearly wrong if you're calling you know, three of the major technologists and scientists of, of the 20th century Luddites. And when you see arguments like, um, you know, the fact that electronic pocket calculators are superhuman arith at arithmetic and they didn't take over the world, so so therefore we have nothing to worry about. Or in fact, one of Rod Brooks's that, uh, you know, horses didn't take over the world, even though they have superhuman strength. <laughs> you you just, it just makes you think that something else is going on besides ordinary rational cognition. It strikes me again and again as, as really as a persistent failure of imagination. I mean, so I, I, I understand if someone thinks they found some reason why superhuman level intelligence is not possible, right? Or we will never, we'll never build it, right? And I, there's, you know, there's no good argument for that that I found, but let's say you thought you had that argument. Well, then you'd mm -hmm. feel the door to these concerns is barred. But for those who accept that we will eventually build something that is smarter than we are, there's a next step that many don't take, and it's they don't seem to realize that we will be in relationship to that thing. And this is by definition a relationship where we don't have full control or full insight into the mind of the other. This falls right out of the definition of what we mean by something more intelligent and powerful than ourselves. And so it's, it's almost like 
you know, you, the two of us are sitting, if we were sitting here in a, at a conference table, and some new person came into the room and started interacting with us, right? It's, it, we, we're suddenly in relationship, and the prospect of this person being able to manipulate us or lie to us or outclass us intellectually, we have intuitions for this. It's obvious that, that all of that is possible. But people seem to imagine that we're going to build machines that, you know, as stipulated, will be vastly more competent than we are, and yet somehow they think it's, it will be trivially easy to maintain a relationship with them that doesn't go off the rails. Yeah, and, and to some extent you can see that in, in Stephen Pinker's argument. Yeah, no, Steve and um, I have debated this too, and it, 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 honestly it is crazy-making. So, so Steve's view seemed to be that, well, you know, we're a technologically advanced society and we don't make that kind of mistake. And, you know, the problems will be solved, so don't talk about them, which is kind of, which is kind of like saying, well, yes, I mean, when, when people thought about using nuclear reactions to produce energy, there, w- there were potential problems with containment failure. And we did kind of solve those, although we ha- have had a few containment failures. So we should never have talked about the possibility of containment failure, which, which just doesn't make sense. The way our technological society actually solves these problems is by talking about them, by people pointing them out. Someone saying, look, if you have an uncontained nuclear reaction that's supercritical, that's called a bomb, and you don't want to have a bomb in your backyard. So you have to find a way to containing the reaction at subcritical level, and then they think about how to solve that problem. No one went around saying, no, don't talk about containment. That's, that's just scaremongering. Because, of course, if you, if you can't talk about the potential problems with a technology, you can't solve those problems. If you're not allowed to talk about global warming, you're not going to contain CO2 production. And so it's just it's getting things completely backwards. No one that I've seen has a proposal for how we would actually manage to maintain power over things that are more powerful than us forever. It's worse than that. So one additional wrinkle here is that there are many people who doubt the ethics of such a proposition. So it just seems obscene to enslave something more intelligent than we are. I mean, this is a, these people are smuggling in, at least to my eye, smuggling in the property of consciousness into these machines, and then we could legitimately worry Mm -hmm. whether we've built gods who can suffer our dominion. But if you just imagine intelligent machines that are competent and not conscious, if that's possible, that seems like a quite crazy concern. I mean, there are people who would allege that we are being racist or speciesist to assume that we should control these machines indefinitely. Well, I guess the answer is if if we don't control them, we better not have them at all. So I think we do need to resolve that issue. And, you know, when when you look at some science fiction, so Samuel Butler's Erewhon or Frank Herbert's Dune, right, in both of those situations, the the societal solution was to say, okay, we forswear intelligent machines. In the case of Erewhon, they just predicted that it would lead to catastrophe and um, and then just got rid of all the machines before it even happened. And Dune, 
they did have a catastrophe and almost, you know, the human race was almost wiped out. And then after that, they said, okay, no more, no more intelligent machines. So, you know, that, that is one possible direction. The other possible direction is that, you know, we, we maintain dominion forever. And I think it is a reasonable question. And I would say, you know, for most of its history, AI researchers have come down on the side of saying, well, why shouldn't our machines be conscious, right? You know, and, and accusing John Searle and others of being neuronal chauvinists for saying that, no, no, they, they, it's definitely only neurons that can be conscious and an intelligent machine is merely a simulacrum and doesn't have any internal life or, or real understanding. You know, so AI people generally said, well, we can't prove that it would, but we don't see a strong argument to show that it definitely won't be conscious. So if someone says to you now, well, okay, let's say in 20 years we have very intelligent machines, and someone says, how do you know it's not conscious? How do you know it's not experiencing and possibly even suffering from the constraints that we're putting on it? I can't prove to you that that isn't happening. I'd yeah, be very surprised. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think it's quite likely that in the process of understanding how to create superhuman AI, we will understand a bit more about consciousness. And we may be able to modulate our designs to avoid consciousness, if that's possible. My intuition is that we will build machines that pass the Turing test before we understand actually how consciousness emerges. and then it will seem like a problem we can't really get a purchase on to worry whether or not these new creatures are conscious, because they will seem conscious. And all of our intuitions that, that cause us to effortlessly ascribe consciousness to one another and to, to other animals will be played upon, and then it will just, you know, we'll be in this place of not really having understood the point at which consciousness emerges and yet finding ourselves in relationship to machines that convince us that they're conscious, because we, we will build them to be able to play that side of the board mm-hmm. in a social game. I mean, we won't build all of them that way, but we'll certainly build some of them that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that, except in very, very limited circumstances, we should avoid humanoid AI mm-hmm. systems altogether, whether they're physically embodied or, or even just graphically rendered, I think making them humanoid will make it much, much more difficult for us to avoid ascribing consciousness to them. Right. Although then the flip side of that is, if consciousness really does just come along for the ride at a certain level of informational complexity, and you actually can't build something super intelligent without the lights of subjectivity coming on, well, then we could build super intelligent, conscious, yet completely alien systems, you know, systems that we, we have no idea whether or not they're conscious, and you know, there's no interface yeah. that suggests that they are, and yet there's something that it's like to be these systems. And it is an interesting ethical question as to whether or not we're building systems that can suffer in those cases. Yeah, but if we, if we make them humanoid, we're likely to ascribe a human-like consciousness to no them. No doubt, and yeah. I, I think... You know, and we're getting definitely into the realm of speculation here. So everything I say should be surrounded in scare quotes. I think that if we do accidentally make conscious machines, their consciousness will be utterly unlike ours. 
because you know it is a different physical substrate our our mental processing is going to be very very different from their mental processing you know just uh, just to give a simple example right we can we can create systems even right now that can look at the entire earth every day down to a fairly small sort of 30 centimeter pixel size you know and and it's incomprehensible for a human to have that kind of perceptual capability but that could be just routine for the systems that we're building you know they'll obviously they have combinatorial and and calculation capacities that far outstrip any any human you know memory and recall that are possibly billions of times larger and faster than humans so their whole mode of being a mode of of cognition is not going to be human like in any way so the so the idea that they would be having the same kinds of emotional experiences you mm. know when they don't have any of the you know from what we understand a lot of our emotional experiences have to do with you know the endocrine system and neurotransmitters as well as the sort of digital properties of our brains and they're not going to have any of those so well as as one who has occasionally left the house only to discover that he's neglected to shave part of his own face the idea that you can see every, <laughs> 30 centimeter pixels of the entire earth every day is that is a different mind indeed Stuart, I want to get to your article in this book because, again, you lay this out in a way that I find uniquely compelling. You have a section in this paper titled, A Thousand and One Reasons Not to Pay Attention. And I want to run through a few of these because this is, this is the kind of thing those of us on, on your side of the argument keep coming up against, and it's, it is strange. So the, the first one I want to touch is, don't worry, we can switch it off. And um, this, is, this is actually the only example I have of changing someone's mind in this space. I don't know if the, his mind got changed back, but I remember this was Neil deGrasse Tyson's argument against why this was anything to worry about. You can just switch the machine off, although apparently he heard a subsequent podcast where I was talking with Eliezer Yudkowsky about this, and something Eliezer said got to him on this topic. But many people are persuaded that What's the problem here? This is this is we've built this thing. We can always switch it off. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Alan Turing said, actually. Uh, although he doesn't say we can always switch it off, he says, you know, if we were fortunate, we might at strategic moments be able to turn off the power. So he's definitely not taking it for granted. And he says, you know, even so, our species would be humbled. So um, right, the problem is it's it's kind of like saying, you know, what's the problem beating AlphaGo at Go? You just play the right moves. Right. What's the problem? Well, <laughs> you know, you can't. There's no human being alive who can, and there probably never will be. So, so the idea that you could simply outsmart something that's much smarter than you are is just self-contradictory. But what is assumed here in the logic is that part of the utility function or goal set of a sufficiently intelligent machine that has other goals is to not get switched off because getting switched off is antithetical to doing everything else that it has been programmed to do or comes to want to do. Yeah, I mean, this is the, I, you know, I, I summarize it as you can't fetch the coffee if you're dead hmm. argument. So if a machine is pursuing the objective of fetching the coffee, it will 
take steps to prevent itself from being switched off because if it was switched off, it couldn't fetch the coffees. So straightforward derivation from this classical notion of objectives that we put into the machine. And, you know, so, so there are those who persist in the idea that, oh, well, we, we just, we don't put in self-preservation and then there won't be a problem. But the point is, self-preservation is going to be a goal of the machine, even if we don't put it in, because self-preservation is necessary for whatever objective we do put in. Right. So right. to allow, you know, for a machine to allow a human to switch it off, it has to think that that's a good idea. And uh, so I'm writing this this new book about this, and I've been calling this the loophole principle. That you know, if if you think that you can fix that problem by sort of passing a law, so to speak, that says, okay, the machine has to allow you to to switch it off. It's kind of like saying. It's kind of like writing tax law, right? You write all these laws to say you have to pay your taxes, but if the if the person or the corporation doesn't want to pay their taxes and they are much more intelligent than you, they will find a loophole. They will find a way to to get the objective that they're pursuing, you know, while in some way respecting the letter of the law but violating the spirit. Hmm. So the only way we're going to get intelligent machines to allow us to switch them off is if they want to allow us to switch them off, right? If their their goal structures include that outcome as desirable. And the way, the way that works is that it's desirable to a machine whose objective is to satisfy human preferences, but is aware that it might make mistakes, that it might do things that violate those preferences. And in that case, it would reason that being switched off is actually beneficial because the human is switching me off to prevent one of these negative outcomes. And I don't exactly know what that negative outcome is, but I know I want to avoid it. So if I have to be switched off, I have to be switched off. Hmm. And so that, I think, you know, that core connection is between the, the machine's uncertainty about human preferences and its willingness to be switched off. I think that connection is at the core of how we address the problem of control over machines. Right, right. Now, what, what could conceivably guarantee that that core value of always better approximating human preferences, that that itself wouldn't shift? So, so this comes down to the general question of why a, an entity, a rational entity that has, has some goal, would switch to a different goal, right? Would change its own preferences to something else. Because if you, you know, if, if you have some core objective, then taking an action such, you know, for humans that might mean doing surgery on your own brain, possibly with chemicals, which a lot of people actually do do, you're changing yourself into someone who's pursuing a different objective. And therefore that person is very unlikely to achieve the original objective. And so why would you do that, right? Why would you, if, if you're pursuing objective A, why would you change yourself into something that pursues objective B? Because then you pretty much guarantee that you're going to fail in your original objective. So, so that's a, you know, a somewhat persuasive argument that intelligent entities 
will generally try to preserve their objective structures so that they eventually achieve the objectives. Is it cast iron guarantee? No, I don't think so. It seems that the seed of incoherence must be built into the system, or it has to be imposed from without. There has to be some error that causes the system to move along a different path, or it has to already be in conflict with itself. To use the analogy to a person, well, you know, obviously we're not a coherent whole as minds in any, in any mm-hmm. fundamental sense. We don't have a single objective function or, or one that always trumps all competitors. There's a kind of a congress of intentionalities in every human mind, or so it would appear. So the part of you that wants to stay on a diet can be usurped by the part of you that wants a hot fudge sundae. And, you know, that contest happens again and again, and everyone knows what that's like. And presumably, we would not build a super intelligent AI that was so obviously in opposition to itself in that way. But do my intuitions here track what you think is true from a computer science point of view? I mean, the rewriting of its own goals can't happen magically or by accident. There'd have to be some physical process already encoded or some intrusion from without to get anything to change here. Yes, I think that's right. I I think there, in some of these arguments, there's a bit of magical thinking going on. And and I think one has to be careful in, in making these arguments, which they seem fine, you know, if it's a philosopher talking to a philosopher to, to talk about machines having goals and, and, you know, the argument I just gave you that, you know, a machine with objective A isn't going to want to change itself into a machine with objective B. But these are very hand-wavy arguments. We don't have a definition for what does it mean to say a machine has objective A, period. We just don't have a definition for that. Even if you look at AlphaGo, right, which is, you know, it's a, you would think a pretty simple system. It tries to win at Go. But in fact, is that its objective? No. It's, I mean, it, it isn't explicitly represented anywhere that that's its objective. And in fact, when you when you start taking apart the code of AI systems, the, it, it's not as simple as saying, in most cases, that the the objective sort of is sitting somewhere in the code and, and the rest of the code is sort of going and checking, okay, what's my objective? Oh, that is, okay, I'll, I'm, I'll choose an action that, that works with that. How is this different from what most of us do most of the time? So for instance, it's certainly true to say of my five-year-old daughter that she's spending a lot of her time parsing English grammar and recognizing human faces and facial displays of emotion, and yet she has not explicitly represented any of those goals to herself, and she, you know, she may, it may be 15 years before she has a conscious concept of any of those cognitive tasks. Essentially, she's alpha go with respect to things like that, right? Yeah. So, so the the thing to do is to actually look at more precise descriptions than just saying alpha go wants to win, right? I mean, it, to a first approximation, that's a reasonable thing to say. But when you it, when you want to start arguing about things like goal preservation or uh, rational preference change and so on, 
you can't talk at that level because it's not precise enough. Mm -hmm. So when you ask, okay, so what is really the right way of talking about AlphaGo? So what AlphaGo does is it, in, in the training phase, the objective of winning is built in, right? There's a little piece of code that determines has AlphaGo won or lost the game. And if it's won, then it gives it a reward of plus one. And if it lost, it gives it a reward of minus one. And then the AlphaGo learning algorithm, the reinforcement learning algorithm, takes that reward and does something to update its own code. So what we would say is that AlphaGo is something that was trained with the objective of winning the game, which learned an approximate predictor for whether a given state is likely to lead to a win, and then does an approximate search or an incomplete search. It doesn't search all the way to the end of the game to produce moves that are guaranteed to win. It searches some distance into the future and then guesses whether those states are likely to lead to a win. So it's an approximate search with an approximately uh, learned predictor, which was originally trained on the objective of winning the game. So that's the right way to describe AlphaGo. And then you could ask, well, you know, could AlphaGo or some AlphaGo++ that was much more intelligent continue to evolve in a way that would lead us to describe it differently? That, okay, it seems to have evolved to a point where it's pursuing a different goal uh, with you know, some approximate predictor of it, and so on. And, uh, and in fact, there is, there's sort of a, a symbiosis between the fact that it's doing a limited amount of look-ahead search and the nature of the predictor. So if it did a limited look-ahead search and then just said, okay, well, have I won or not? Almost all the time, the answer would be, no, you haven't won yet. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's still another 50 moves or 100 moves to go. And it was, oh, well, I haven't won yet. So that position is no good. Okay, I haven't won, I haven't won, I haven't won it would play terribly. So it evolved, if you like, this proximate predictor, which acts as a proxy objective. So if you said literally what is the objective that it's maximizing, it would be this proxy predictor, um, and it's doing a certain amount of search, and then the proxy predictor is standing in for the true objective, because it's a better proxy predictor than the true objective is. And then you know, as we start to build more and more complex systems, we're going to have even more elaborate descriptions of these systems in terms of how the objective inst is instantiated. I mean, there's a, there's a simple fact which you don't often see pointed out, which is that if your objective never changes, there's really no need for it to be explicit. Mm. It's, you know, the... The reason why we have explicit knowledge and explicit objectives is because those things are changeable. So if a, if a self-driving car always had the same destination, there would be no need to have that destination explicitly mm. represented. The reason why self-driving cars and, and navigation algorithms of all kinds on your cell phone have a place where you put the destination is so that the algorithm can compute a route to that destination, which it may never have seen before. But if it's always the same destination, then you can get by just with something that tells the algorithm, okay, turn left here, turn right there. If this is road is blocked, then take this other road. But it doesn't ever need to think about explicitly what is the destination. I guess there, are, there may be different ways in which 
we can consider something explicit. So just to go back to my analogy to my daughter or to even me in this in the current circumstance, I have an explicit representation of what it's like to decode English speech, or at least I have a concept that I'm doing it and I find that it effortlessly occurs and then when it fails, it fails for reasons that are mysterious. But there's no choice in the matter. I don't have a I can't choose not to understand the noises you're making. There's no degree of freedom open to me by virtue of it being explicit or it's or it's not been made explicit because I can choose to do otherwise. Yeah. I mean I think I, I spent I spent a lot of time in France and, and I think I think you for me, understanding French is a, a serious amount of effort, yeah. particularly once you get into a sort of dinner, dinner party, high-speed, noisy background situation. Right. And, you know, if I'm tired, I will, deliver, I will sort of switch off the understanding. I'll say, oh, you know what, this is just too tiring, so I'm going to let this all wash over me and not understand what people are saying. So, there, yeah, that's interesting. There's a, a certain level of competence which, is, which gives you no freedom, and, and if you're less competent, some freedom is preserved. Yeah. So seeing objects, right? You know, when you when you open your eyes and you see a coffee cup, you can't not see it as a coffee cup, right? It, so there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff that is automatic and over which you have very little processing control. But you know, on the other hand, there are things about which you have a lot of processing control. You could, you know, I could decide to think about what I'm going to have for lunch, or I can decide. You know, I have more important things to think about, so I'm going to think about those instead. Right, right. Okay, well, so back to your list before we get derailed by cognitive science in general. I want to get back to uh, the problem at hand. Mm -hmm. Another objection, human-level AI is impossible. Yeah, and this, I, I, I think you said earlier that you haven't seen an explanation for why that's the case, and I haven't seen one either, but I've seen the claim coming now, not from the usual crowd, who are the sort of skeptical philosophers dating back to the 1950s, you know, the Turing, in his 1950 paper, was fighting against, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that to think of a machine having original thoughts or a machine learning is obviously completely ridiculous. And, and even, you know, so everyone thinks of Ada Lovelace as, uh, you know, one of the great progenitors of, of AI, but uh, you know, even she said that the machine has no pretense to originate anything. Uh, it can only do what we program it to do, hmm. which is, uh, you know, so that's a pretty simple mistake, and, and Turing dismissed that. And you can point out that, of course, you know, we, we can't originate anything in that sense either. We can only do what our genes program us to do. So or the machinery that our genes have produced right. in our brains. So it, it's, it's baffling, but not particularly surprising when, when philosophers do this. But now it seems that AI people are doing this as well. There was a, a report, there's a, a group called the, the 100-Year Study on AI, which was set up at Stanford you know, with the very laudable goal of kind of keeping track on a, on a long timescale of what is going on with the field and and to think about trends and directions. But their first report explicitly says that human, uh, superhuman AI is, is probably not even possible. And as far as I know, that's the first time that serious AI researchers have ever said that AI is guaranteed to fail. 
I haven't read that report, but what I mean, do you recall what the reasons were or the or the, the steps none in the argument? What, none whatsoever. It's just again, I'm, I'm just slack jawed. <laughs> it's completely baffling. Other than a defensive reaction, right? That they're they're in a, it's in a paragraph where they're saying, oh, you know, all this fear mongering is going on is bad for the field, and so their defense against the fear mongering is to say, well, don't worry, we're guaranteed to fail. So there's nothing to fear, which is completely bizarre. You know, if, if if the head of the you know National Cancer Institute got up and said, you know what, thanks for the five hundred billion dollars you've given us for cancer research, we are guaranteed to fail. We've been fooling you all along. We're never going to cure cancer. We're we're, <laughs> we're stringing along all those patients hoping for a cure. We've just been lying to you all this time, right? I mean that that would be totally unimaginable. But that's sort of what they're saying, and I, I just don't get it. Other than it's just another defensive reaction. And the weird thing is, this defensive reaction is, is both completely unwise in the sense that, you know, if we don't solve this problem, we will never get the benefits of AI, right? It, and the nuclear industry demonstrates this. They didn't really solve the problem of containment, and they destroyed themselves as a result, right? They had containment failures at Chernobyl and Fukushima. And the nuclear industry is, for all intents and purposes, dead. Mm. We don't want that to happen to AI. So, so trying to dismiss risks is a self-defeating approach. And the other thing is that it's not an attack on AI to say that AI systems could be very powerful. It's a compliment to AI. It's not an attack on physics to say that physicists could invent something that liberates enormous quantities of energy. It's a compliment to physics, and it's just asking the physicists, please be careful. We understand that you have unlocked the secrets of, secrets of the universe. Please be careful with them. Mm. And so I, I don't understand this form of reaction from the AI community, which is sort of circle the wagons, deny, 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 deny. It doesn't make much sense to me. Well, well it contains a very strong assumption that intelligence is not platform independent or substrate independent. And yet, we already know that it is for narrow forms of intelligence. We, we know that the intelligence sufficient to perform arithmetic is substrate independent. Computers made of meat can do it, and, and our phones can do it. At least the argument has to be explicit that you, you have to say that for a certain kind of intelligence or intelligence at a certain level, you need biological substrate to perform those operations. And again, I, I don't see how anyone would think that is likely. There's so many ways at arriving at an intuition that would defeat that. I mean, if you just imagine replacing your own biological neurons with artificial ones that had exactly the same input and output characteristics, certainly most Neuroscientist intuitions there, I would think, would be that, yeah, if you yeah. give me a, a neuron made of some other substrate, but it performs the exact same operations at the level of input and output, that could be used to seamlessly replace biological yeah. wetware. Right. I mean, scientists are generally reductionists. There are a few mysterious emergentists, but, and certainly the AI community has operated on the premise that you can produce intelligent behavior with computers. I mean, that's sort of what it means. Mm. So I don't think that 
there's real thought going into this form of denialism. I, I just think it's a it's a defensive reaction with with no underlying arguments. And and the the surveys, I mean, if you ask AI researchers when they think human level AI is going to be achieved, you know, modulo some doubts about how precisely that that question is even defined. You know, most of them are pretty confident that it's going to happen within this century. Mm. So so maybe there's some kind of schizophrenia going on here. I don't know. And uh, there's another version of the argument which says that the whole notion of superhuman AI is is just ill-defined. This is sometimes called a multi-dimensional argument. Yeah, that yeah I wanted to get to that. There are, there are multiple dimensions of intelligence. And um, different people can have higher levels of some kinds of intelligence and lower levels of other kinds of intelligence. And so there isn't a single scale on which you can line everyone up. And, you know, I think there's, there's validity to that, for sure. There isn't a single scale, although generally there's fairly high correlation between abilities on each of these different scales. And so in common parlance, for thousands of years, we've had the idea that some people are just smarter than others. Some people are the village idiot. And some people are wise beyond ordinary mortals. And so this incomparability proof, and Kevin Kelly, I think, is one person who pursues this, and Rod Brooks Mm -hmm. echoes a lot of his arguments. You know, Kevin Kelly goes as far as to say that the claim is simply meaningless, that to say that something is smarter than a human is just meaningless. Yeah. No, I've had Kevin on the podcast, and uh, I believe we touched that. And I also had the biologist David Krakauer, who runs the Santa Fe Institute on the podcast, and he struck a similar note. I mean, just comparing humans to cephalopods, for instance, you know, like what's the IQ of an octopus? It's a meaningless question. And the temptation there is to draw, as you say, this conclusion that there's, there's no jeopardy here because just to say that something is, is smarter than humans will, at the end of the day, seem vacuous. But then in your chapter in the book, you draw the compelling analogy to gorillas. So if smarter than humans is meaningless, well, then smarter than gorillas is also meaningless. But how well has that worked out for gorillas in proximity to humankind? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, and, and all the species that we've already driven into extinction you know, they can be standing there saying, oh, but I'm, I'm smarter than you in some dimensions. Right. And they are. I mean, you know, it, it turns out I was quite surprised that, that chimpanzees actually have considerably better short-term memory yeah. than humans, even for telephone numbers. Yeah, it's amazing. That video is on YouTube, I believe. There's testing the kind of digit span of, of chimps, and it's pretty remarkable to see them enter the numbers better than you ever could. Yeah. And that's not even something they were evolved to to really do or acculturated to do, and they still do it better than us. And short-term memory is a significant piece of our intellectual apparatus. And and in fact, a lot of psychologists will say you know it's one of our biggest bottlenecks. If we if we could increase the size of our short-term memory, we we would all be geniuses. And I think there may be some truth to that. You know, when you think about proving mathematical theorems or you know, thinking about uh, a long sequence of moves in chess, mm. it's really hard to do if uh, if you can't remember more than five things. 
So, yeah, so despite that, chimpanzees are completely at the mercy of humans. And, uh, and so far, so is every other species on Earth. So I don't draw any illusion of safety from, from this multidimensional argument. It just, it just seems pretty empty. And besides, you know, even if it did have teeth, what's to stop a machine from exceeding human capabilities on all the dimensions that matter? David Deutsch has an argument here. I, I, I've forgotten whether it's in his piece in the book, but it certainly came up in conversation. He just thinks that this is a non-issue because the only limitation on a mind is access to you know, processing power and memory, right? And you know, in the presence of any intelligent machines we build, we will have access to technology that allows us to scale alongside them and remain in dialogue and collaboration with them. We, it, we'll, we'll never find ourselves in the presence of minds we can't understand because we, there, there will always be a bridge from where we are cognitively to where they are. He actually, at some point, draws the analogy to raising teenagers, right? You, know, you, you can suddenly find yourself in the presence of beings as a parent who have new objectives and goals that are somewhat foreign to you, say, or mm-hmm. even objectionable to you, and they're, they're, they're showing an unwillingness to be perfectly constrained by your edicts, and yet this is not a situation that tends to prove fatal to any generation. I mean, I don't know if you know David or if you've heard the kinds of things he says about this, but I mean, I, I find myself not drawing any comfort from these analogies and notions. Yeah, so clearly it's different from the teenager situation because, or, or maybe, you know, your, your teenage child is Adolf Hitler or something where... It's the prospect of a teenager going into its room and doing the equivalent of 30,000 years of intellectual work for every hour you're doing his laundry and, and, and trying to imagine who you're going to meet at dinner that night. It's a good analogy for about, you know, a week when, when AI systems are sort of roughly in the ballpark. Right. But I don't think anyone thinks that AI systems are going to hang around at the teenage, you know, hu- human IQ level, if that, if that means anything, for very long. In fact, they're never really going to be there at all no. because, you know, long, long before they have the, the general purpose intelligence of a human, they will far exceed us in broad areas, for example, in terms of general knowledge, right? They'll, you know, as soon as they can read, they will read everything that's ever been written and be able to integrate that into, into you know, a synthesized knowledge base that far exceeds anything that a human could ever have. So they might not, at that stage, be able to plan their way out of a paper bag, but they'll already know far more than, than all humans put together. So there probably won't ever be a time where they resemble a fairly intelligent, surly teenager. So the idea, that, the idea that we'll just be able to access additional compute power and memory, I mean, that, that seems extremely speculative in terms of our understanding of neuroscience. I mean, it might be that, in fact, you can plug in all the compute power you want, but unless you completely get rid of your brain altogether, there's simply a big impedance mismatch between you know, a processor that's operating at, you know, a petahertz 
and uh, and your brain, which is operating at a, a couple of hundred hertz. And um, there's simply no way the brain can use all that processing power. Maybe memory. I could believe that the brain could make use of electronic memory. Brain's very good at sort of figuring out, you know, connecting to a new peripheral and figuring out, you know, unlike Microsoft Windows where you connect a new peripheral and you don't have the right driver, well, it's, you know, all, all hell breaks loose. But the brain sort of figures out how this new peripheral works mm. and it may be able to figure out how a memory peripheral works and be able to use that. And that might give us perhaps better short-term memory, faster retrieval from long-term memory and a few other things like that. But the idea that the only way we're going to survive is, first of all, by understanding the mysteries of the human brain and how it works, and then all of us having brain surgery to connect us to vast amounts of electronic equipment, that doesn't seem right, right? I mean, if that's our future, we've made a mistake somewhere. Right. That's a fairly high barrier to entry. Cracking the neural code and getting all of the early adopters to integrate themselves with this new technology through neurosurgery. Ironically, this notion that human-level AI is impossible, or at least extremely unlikely, is in fact true in the sense that, as you say, we will go from subhuman-level AI to superhuman AI in the blink of an eye. I mean, there will be no time where we build machines that are as bad at chess as we are. Right. So the moment we have anything that's general, all of these piecemeal narrow competences will come online as already superhuman. Yeah. 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 So so it'll be it'll be a gradual piecing together of these superhuman components and un, an understanding of how to integrate them. And yeah, so when when the integration is complete, you're already going to be superhuman, it seems to me. Hmm. Is the prospect of general intelligence on some level a red herring in that is there a possible or even likely future where we just knit together many narrow competences where we sort of lose sight of the notion of whether this thing can be classified as a general intelligence or even if that even means anything i mean if you, if you could knit together the top 100 things that we care about from you know, facial and recognition and emotional emotion recognition on down. So a kind of a big collection of apps yeah, on yourself, right? Where where each app is is good at one thing. I mean, that's possible. So so that would mean stopping major avenues of AI research, which are aiming towards general purpose. So it isn't meaningless at all. I think what we mean by general purpose is that the you know the learning system is capable of recognizing and extrapolating general patterns no matter what the specific data source is and then the decision making component if, if you want to split it up that way is able to formulate high quality plans for for any you know no matter what the the underlying substrate environment is and no matter what the objective i guess what i'm imagining is that what we're calling general intelligence in our case could be something that some vague, vaguely shaped abstract idea that stands at the intersection of all of our specific competences and that we could find ourselves 
stumbling into building an AI that is a is a kind of patchwork of narrow competences. Where we, I guess, I'm wondering: is there a path to what we consider to be general intelligence, which can be arrived at without us ever really understanding what general intelligence is in itself? And perhaps it maybe isn't anything in itself. It is actually an emergent property of just enough specific competence. So I guess it depends what you mean by specific competence. I mean, I, I, I don't think that just because you have a Go program and a driving program, you know, and an orbital mechanics program, that general intelligence is going to emerge from those. Right. So what we, what we mean, so if, if, you, if you look at... Let's, let's back into it the other way. You and I each have a finite number of specific programs, and I don't even have a Go program, right? No, but the point is that you no, you don't have a finite number of specific programs. You have a general purpose ability such that if I gave you a book on Go and a few days to mess around with a Go board and maybe an opponent to help you, you would be able to come out at the end playing Go. And ditto skinning rabbits and ditto um, you know, building brick and mortar huts and ditto, you know, carving wood into the into the shape of a dolphin, and you name it. I mean, and anything you can think of, you don't come with a program for that. No, no, but well, I come with a program for something that allows me to do that. So, I mean, for instance, the the skinning rabbits and the what was it, carving dolphins out of wood. Each of those specific programs that I have I have given no attention to in my life are reducible to something more basic, which allows me to cook a meal and find my phone in my pocket and all of that. So there's some, they're, they're more rudimentary motor programs. And presumably my ability to, to learn Go is parasitic on, on something that need never reference Go, but allows me to learn to play other games and, and understand other abstract things. So whatever those programs are, it's not just one program that allows us to do all of these diverse things that, that, that presumably there are specific i mean we know enough and to know about, you know we know enough about the, the human mind now that you can interrupt some of these things and and spare others so whatever the the list is of specific competences it's more than one and less than a million but i don't i i don't agree that that's the way to think about human oh you don't agree with that no i mean i i think we have a very, we have a very general capability for learning, and when that ability interacts with a particular domain, it produces a specific competence, right? And we and we know something about how this works. That you know you you can generate neural routines which are apparently stored in the basal ganglia and then can be retrieved on demand. And built into new neural routines, which are then stored in the basal ganglia, and by right. that process, we gradually build up to larger and larger units of competence. So, first of all, you might learn to to draw a single letter, and then you learn to write whole words. And so, and the writing of those words becomes completely automatic, you know. And same with with typing, for example. And you can see this because if I if I give you a new word to type, like the name of some Polish town, you can't type it very fast. 
right? Not even close to the speed at which you type your own name or a name like Manchester that you're familiar with. Right. You know, a, a, a lot of neuroscientists, they look at the, the cortex and they say, look, it's, it's the same everywhere. It's pretty much just a uniform substrate. And you can even have a new body. So I, I don't, you know, even on what, what you think of as, as, okay, maybe we come with some motor control competence. But I give you a new body. I put you in an exoskeleton that has, you know, limbs that are eight times longer and 40 times stronger. That becomes your body. And fairly soon, you're, you know, you are a, a creature weighing 20 tons and, uh, and moving around just as if that was your body. So our, this flexibility is, I mean, the interesting question is, you know, what is it that we can't learn to do? You know, and I think short-term memory limitations are one of the things we can't easily overcome. It's really hard to multiply million-digit numbers in your head. But our ability to, to adapt to any situation and any demand is really remarkable. And I think it's what, you know, it's what makes us the apex species on the planet. Right. And, and the, the, the core capabilities there are not that many, right? I think one of them is the, the ability to, to formulate hierarchical behavioral and conceptual structures from lower level concepts and lower level behavioral elements. That's a key thing because that's what enables us to act over long timescales, right? To do things like a PhD, which takes six years and a trillion motor control instructions. And yet we can decide to do that. And between a PhD and your motor control level, there are, you know, 30 or 40 layers of abstraction that we have gradually built up either from our own learning processes or from the civilization that has accumulated them over the, the millennia. So that's one big capability. You know, pattern recognition is, is another big capability. And, uh, you know, meta reasoning, so the ability to control our computational activities so that they are directed towards generating effective behavior in a wide range of circumstances. I think that's another important thing. But there's, there's like, you know, less than 10 of these very general capabilities. And if we figure out, and we've, we've studied them each individually, and we've made some progress on each of them, and we're starting to see applications where you need to put them together and we're finding ways to put them together so i'm you know i'm keeping track of what's happening in games you know so go and chess and things like that these are fully observable games with short horizons but when you look at starcraft for example or dota defense of the age of the ancients these are games with long horizons, tens of thousands of time steps, and partial observability. So there's parts of the world that you can't see, so you have to sort of keep track of them in your mind or explore and find out. So going from chess to, to StarCraft is a big step towards generality. It's not just another game. And people should understand, when, when DeepMind worked on Go, they didn't do any Go programming. They right. came up with a general purpose technique, which when applied to Go, learns superhuman Go playing. But it's limited in the sense that it assumes full observability of the board and a relatively short time horizon 
for the time you get a reward is only a few hundred steps, not a few million or a few billion steps. But as we then work on other problems like StarCraft, we are pushing back on those assumptions and moving us, you know, big steps closer to full generality. Mm. I guess we might be talking past each other a little bit on on this notion of generality. I, I guess my question is, could our notion of generality, I mean, you, you might have more or less said as much in, in your last volley here, but could the notion of generality be a placeholder for a a set of separate competences that we just haven't fully conceived yet. I mean, so one analogy is to the notion of memory. Most people have a, a folk psychological notion of memory as though it were one thing. I mean, you and I have mentioned, you know, short, short-term memory here, working memory, but we know now that working memory is not at all the same sort of thing as episodic memory, you know, so-called long-term memory, or say, you know, semantic memory, or procedural memory. I mean, these are all different kinds of memory. The memory that allows you to ride a bike is not the same thing that allows you to tell me what you had for breakfast. And neither of those is, is, the, is precisely the same as you remembering what the word transformer means. And so maybe general and what we're calling the general part of general intelligence could be half a dozen or a dozen things that we haven't fully understood yet. And I'm just wondering if this could have the, the experience of being a kind of mirage where we cobble this thing together, to take memory as the example, which I understand better, just imagine we, we build you know, a short-term memory function, a working memory function, and at some later point, we build the procedural memory function, uh, you know, the motor memory function. And at a certain point, the, the problem of memory will have been solved, and at no point will we have said, we solved it in the general way. We just got enough of the pieces on the board and the game played itself adequately. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we're disagreeing. I, I think that the capacity for general purpose intelligence consists of the integration of a number of fundamental capabilities, which are pretty much domain independent. That point is interesting, yeah. Let's say there are 10 of them, right? You could have a system that has eight of them. Right. And it will be, you know, and, and could have those in superhuman quantities, so to speak. And But that system would fail in certain ways, and there will be certain things it just can't do because yeah. it's lacking some of these capabilities. But when you figure out how to put, you know, so this is sort of what happens in AI research, right? We we make our best guess about how to make an intelligent system. We we try it out and we say, oh, look, it completely fails because we forgot such and such, right? Okay, let's go back to the drawing board and figure out this such and such. But the such and such is not, it's not very good at skinning rabbits. It's something like, okay, we, it, it, it's not able to, to learn cumulatively based on its previous knowledge, right? So the, it's, it's deficits of a, of a very general kind, mm. which when, when we solve, you know, and then we go back and we, we try to solve those in the context of a particular task. But the solution we come up with is typically, if it's done by a good researcher, it's generalizable. It, it's, a, it's a solution that works no matter what the task. And I think we need another 
handful of breakthroughs and then ways of integrating those breakthroughs into a single entity. And um, then I think we'll have something that we would all agree was a, an extremely general and extremely capable intelligence. And you'd have a very hard time finding things that it could not learn to do. So when those breakthroughs will occur, it's very hard to say. I think it's extremely unlikely that they're going to happen all at the same time. But any one of them could happen overnight. It seems, again, drawing from the analogy we just made, it seems like the, the critical one, the, the final critical one, could happen and we could be surprised by what a difference it makes, right? I mean, if, if you just imagine there are 10 necessary ingredients and we have nine of them, what would the experience be like of putting the 10th successfully into place? I think it would depend which one, but what's you know the the likely way that the the system with nine of the the required capabilities so now it's sort of feeling like you know Avengers the infinity war where he hasn't collected all he has to collect all seven stones to control the right. universe uh, and, he, and when he's got six of them, he's like really powerful, but you know presumably what what you would see is that the the system would would fail to continue to grow in some direction. And I'm reminded of my first advisor at Stanford, Doug Lennett, and his his systems called AM and Eurisco. And, um, you know, Eurisco was explicitly designed, I think, to, to try to be a general purpose intelligence. And it consisted of seven nested loops where, you know, it would it would learn rules and it would also at the same time learn how to learn better and so on and so forth. And and what you saw was that it would do cute things to start with and then it would just completely run out of steam because it didn't have some necessary capability to, in particular, sort of a, a kind of a cumulative learning process whereby what it had learned already could be brought to bear on learning the next thing. So that's a that's a crucial capability which obviously humans use all the time, um, and that's how we're able to to learn from very very few examples, and that's what clearly not a characteristic of most of the deep learning work that's happening right now. So I think what would happen is we would, you know, with the deficient system, it would be good or extremely good at the capabilities that we had envisaged and designed it for, but it might sort of fail to grow beyond those capabilities uh, because it was just lacking this some some of these self-improving processes. And once that was in place, then what I would expect would be that its capabilities would then grow very rapidly because not necessarily by the intelligence explosion method where it's actually doing AI research to improve its own algorithms mm -hmm. and improve its own hardware, but just by the fact that it has access to so much information and presumably would also be able to simulate so much experience using physical simulation technologies that it would learn and discover at far greater rates than human beings can. So it would just 
discover more, it would know more very quickly and grow in that way. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's analogous to what Alpha Zero did in learning to play. What was it Go or chess? It was turned loose on first. I don't think it matters because it was wiped, its memory was wiped out right. after each of those. Right, right. So it learned chess, Go, and Shogi from a tabula rasa. And in like four hours, it was the, the, the best that had ever been, uh, you know, though we have been studying those games for thousands of years and building computers to play better versions of them for many decades. It started from a, a, a clean slate. We've yet to really understand what, what's going on with AlphaZero. I think one thing that's clear is it also has access to far more computational power. So I, I've been reading up on the, the specs for the Google TPU, which it uses. And if my calculations are correct, its, it's raw operations per second is 4,000 times more than the chess program Stockfish that it was playing against. Mm -hmm. So perhaps it's not surprising that if you have 4,000 times more compute power, you're going to win the game. What's, what's that uh, line? Some general said that sometimes quantity has a quality all its own. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I, I think it's a bit of both. I, I think that what, what AlphaZero is doing, the way it's exploring the search space is probably more effective and, it, and also produces more interesting decisions than, than what Stockfish is doing, which is a, a kind of a fixed depth search, whereas AlphaZero is exploring some branches to very great depth because they're interesting and it's important to explore them, and other branches it's, it's neglecting entirely. It's much more the way that humans do things. So that's an example, right? It's a, it's a form of meta-reasoning. It's quite restricted in its applicability, but it's that meta-reasoning that allows AlphaZero to play incredibly well. And the interesting thing is that, you know, Stockfish uses this alpha-beta algorithm, which is a way that humans invented for deciding which parts of the search tree can be ignored safely. Whereas AlphaZero doesn't have that algorithm and has basically figured out for itself how to explore the right parts of the tree. because the the, the game tree for Go is, you know, far bigger than the number of atoms in the universe. And, and even though AlphaGo has an enormous amount of compute power, it's still only looking at an absolutely infinitesimal fraction of the tree. So it really matters which infinitesimal fraction of the tree you look at. That's the difference between a, a good program and a terrible program. So it figured it, that out for, for itself because we started to understand a general principle of meta-reasoning, which is effectively how to decide which computations are going to help you in your long-run decision and which ones are not. And that general principle, unlike the alpha-beta algorithm, which is very specific to the class of two-player games, that general principle applies to all forms of reasoning under all circumstances. Right. Well, it's, uh, now I'm, I'm mindful of your time, Stuart, so I, I want to just run through two more of the mm -hmm. principal objections to worrying about this and then ask you one further question. 
what do you do with the claim that it's too soon to worry about this problem? So if if that makes sense, that the claim is that the problem of control, namely how do we retain control over machines that are more powerful than us forever, is an easy problem to solve. And we so we just put it off until we really have to worry about it, namely until we actually have these super, super intelligent machines. That seems extremely rash. It's like saying, well, you know, there's an asteroid going to collide with the Earth, but, you know, we've got 75 years. So come back in 74 and a half years and we'll start thinking about how to, how to stop this thing. Yeah, I mean, the, cru- the crucial point there is that there is an assumption that's unacknowledged that, I mean, to take the asteroid analogy, if we are told that we have an asteroid on collision course with the Earth and it will impact in 75 years, if we are not pitched into full emergency mode on the basis of that knowledge, it's only because we have a sense that 75 years is enough time or more than enough time to figure it out, right? And if, yeah. if we need 76 years, this is synonymous with announcing our coming extinction. The other thing that is non-analogous here is that we don't actually know when this breakthrough will occur. So we're, there's, there are two, two assumptions. It'll be a very long time and more than enough time to solve the control problem. Yeah. And I, I think it's very hard to predict when, thing, when these things will occur. You know, we know with nuclear physics that it was literally overnight. I mean, from, from the time when Rutherford confidently predicted that it was completely impossible to get energy out of atoms to when Zillard invented the nuclear chain reaction was, was less than 24 hours. Right. So these things can happen. I think we need more than one breakthrough of that nature. So that gives me some, some cushion, but it's, it's very hard to say how big that cushion is. And absolutely, we don't know how long it's going to take to solve this, this control problem. So I think we should start working on it now. And, and my research on it so far indicates that we need a major change in the way we think about AI, that the, the current approach, the standard model, as I started calling it, where we supply an objective to a machine, which is then supposed to carry it out, that standard model is just a mistake. And in the long run, we have to abandon that model and do something different. And just shifting the field itself has to take at least a decade to get people on board with this idea. And then we have to figure out, okay, how do we actually do it the right way? You know, and and I, I look at climate change where, you know, people people's said for a long time, oh, well, you know, we don't need to worry about that yet. And then, uh, you know, and George, George Bush, George W. Bush saying, uh, oh, we don't need to worry about that yet. And then later in his administration saying, oh, it's too late. You were right, but it's too late now. So we don't have right. to do anything. There's nothing that can be done. It's too late. So we, we just can't afford to be in that situation when we're talking about who's in control. So this final objection, in some ways, is the most seditious to to our concerns because it it suggests that there is no basis for worry here and and you put it this way in the book any machine intelligent enough to cause trouble will be intelligent enough to have appropriate altruistic objectives if as you get more and more intelligent ethical wisdom comes along for the ride 
you could easily imagine someone of you know, John von Neumann's intellect also being a psychopath. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be anything in principle that rules that out. So I'm not even sure the, the analogy to the human case makes much sense. But, but what do you do with this cheerful notion that ethics will just spontaneously emerge along with intelligence? Well, I, I think it's almost not really an argument. Right? It's, it's, it's just like saying, you know, and then some magic happens, and then the problem goes away. It explicitly denies an intuition, which I think you and I and everyone else who's worried about this share, which is that in the space of all possible superintelligent minds, there have to be more than the ones that remain perfectly aligned with human well-being indefinitely, right? There, ha- there has to be more ways to of course. Yeah. Fi- find ourselves in relationship to something that proves hostile or, or at minimum callous to our interests. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's, there's no argument here as to why they should align themselves with humans unless somehow we have built this into them. I mean, there's nothing special about humans in the universe. Why, why are these superintelligent machines not aligning themselves with the cockroaches? You know, so for the objection even to make sense, it, there, there's a presumption that somehow the behavior of these machines is indexicalized to humans specifically. And yeah, that's a good thing to do. How do you do it? That's exactly what we're working on. And the, and the point being, if you don't do that, then things don't work out well. And, and Steven Pinker is sort of making this argument that, the, you know, I think he puts it that you couldn't imagine a machine that was intelligent enough to, you know, subvert the, the whole human race, but not intelligent enough to, to realize that it was doing things to make us extremely unhappy. But that misses the point. Why does it care whether it's doing something to make us extremely unhappy? Right? Unless somehow we have inculcated this and we built it into its very constitution that that's what its purpose in life is, is to make sure that humans are happy. And that's the alignment problem. So if the objection is, if we don't solve the alignment problem, we'll have real difficulty, then, then I agree with the objection. But it isn't an objection. It's just it's pointing out that there's a failure mode and we need to find out how to avoid that failure mode. It won't be avoided just by itself. Right. In fact, if you, if you look at the way we currently think about designing AI systems, that failure mode is obvious. And it's, you know, I keep coming back to this analogy to nuclear power. If I looked at a design for a nuclear power station, and it's obvious that under certain circumstances that design is going to fail, and we're going to have an uncontrolled meltdown, then we should point out that design failure and we should try to fix it. And saying, oh, well, design failures generally get fixed, so we shouldn't point out any specific design failure. That's ridiculous because that's how design failures get fixed is by pointing them out. So I, I don't really understand why people think that this argument has any force. Also, that this is a point that Eliezer makes a lot, which is it, it does seem unlike any other instance of 
building technology, even the extremely dangerous technology of a badly built nuclear power plant, here we, we, it seems we only have one chance to get it right. I mean, you can't, you can't build the superhuman intelligence wrong that is unaligned and then say, okay, let's back up and get another shot at that. We're talking about something that, that is autonomous by definition. And, you know, because you, you, have, you have launched it, assuming it was built correctly, and you've discovered that it isn't. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, and there, there is an interesting analogy in the history of, of nuclear technology. So when, um, when they were working on the first designs for the atomic bomb, someone worried that this might actually create a chain reaction with the nitrogen in the atmosphere, which yeah. would then basically the entire atmosphere would undergo a fission reaction. And, uh, you know, I read the, the tech report uh, where they go through a kind of back of the envelope calculation and they say, you know, it looks like, you know, we have about a factor, at least a factor of two safety margin based on what we know about the reaction cross sections. You know, and they didn't know that much about the reaction cross sections. And there's a lot of stuff they didn't know. They didn't really know about the strong force, they didn't know about quarks. So, you know, arguably, you know, by by modern safety standards, what they did was incredibly irresponsible. Uh, you know, on an end of the world scale, yeah. Given how little they knew, and uh, we can't afford. And there's also there's no need. I mean, they they might argue, well, you know, we were in the middle of a war and we had to do this before the the Germans or the Japanese or whatever. But here, our development of AI is is a purely optional as far as our civilization is concerned. And uh, we need to, as you say, we need to get it right the first time. And we can only do that through mathematics. Hand-waving and saying, oh, we're going to take all due safety precautions and, and we're fairly sure that we've thought of everything is not good enough. All right, so before I let you go, Stuart, there's two local cases I want to touch on of narrow AI because you've you've thought a lot about these things and these are of immediate concern to most of us. Uh, the first is you, you, you made some remarks. I watched your Long Now presentation in discussion of Brockman's book, and you made some remarks about the filter bubble and you know, social media algorithms as viewed from the point of view of the algorithms. I wonder if you recall what you said there and if you could revisit that. Yeah, so we're used to thinking about this, the filter bubble from the point of view of the person who's bombarded with various things and the algorithms sort of filter out the stuff that we don't want to read, which means that we only look at a particular point of view. And I think that's that's a valid way to think about what's going on. But if you if you think about this from the algorithm point of view, basically the, the system, which is sort of a combination of the algorithms and the the corporations, the people in the corporations who are adjusting them they're a reinforcement learning process to, to maximize click-through revenue. And when you run a reinforcement learning algorithm, here's what it's not doing. It is not looking at what that person clicks on and learning what that person likes and sending them more of what that person likes. Right? That's what you think, and I, I think that's what the designers of these algorithms imagined would happen. But that's not what reinforcement learning does. 
what reinforcement learning does is it acts on its environment to maximize its reward. And what is the environment here? The environment is your brain. So it acts on your brain to make you actually a more predictable clicker. And by the typical process of trial and error, what I think these algorithms have figured out is how to gradually feed you articles that will move you in a direction towards being a more predictable person, a more predictable clicker. That's all it cares about. And, you know, to a first approximation, if you think about a, a, a sort of a, a single line representing the political spectrum, the people at the extremes are very, very predictable. They have very narrow view of the world, which means that they will click on things that are exactly in, in their worldview and they will do so eagerly, whereas someone in the middle is quite unpredictable, right? They, have, they may have fairly broad view of what's interesting to read, and they only have a limited amount of attention, so, so getting them to look at something is, is much more difficult. And so the algorithms have learned to push people towards these predictable extremes, whether it's you know, the left-wing or the right-wing extreme. The algorithm doesn't care. It just cares that when you're there, you're more predictable. And um, this is a hypothesis. I, I don't have first-hand knowledge of exactly how these methods work. But from what I've read, these are reinforcement learning algorithms that are revenue maximizers. And that's the natural consequence. So we're already seeing what happens when you unleash a poorly designed maximizer with the wrong objective on the human race. Uh, you destroy the EU, you <laughs> pretty much destroy NATO, and maybe you destroy West, Western democracy in the space of a few years. And that's just you know 50 lines of code doing that. So it's an object lesson in what happens with badly designed AI and the need not to, to follow that template as we move forward. There's a lot to talk about there, but I will leave it there. Finally, autonomous weapons. This is something that you've taken a, a very strong stand against. And yet this is the use case that in the near term, many of us, even many good ethical people, will find tempting. What is the the argument against the use of autonomy? I, I think you should just take a moment to define what you mean here and tell us why it's good to sign a an open letter saying we will not collaborate in the production of autonomous weapons if you're an AI researcher. So first of all, an autonomous weapon is one that locates, selects, and attacks targets without human intervention. And that's the UN definition, and, and it logically follows from that definition that such weapons are scalable, meaning that you can launch as many of them as you want because you don't have to supervise each of them individually. And so they can be scaled to millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of weapons. So in that sense, they are, they are weapons of mass destruction. And if, they, if, if we move forward in this direction, then these kinds of weapons will be manufactured in very large quantities and will have, you know, just as we as we do now with, with automatic weapons, 
you know, Kalashnikovs and so on. There, there are tens of millions of Kalashnikovs in the hands of people that you'd really rather didn't have them. But those tens of millions of weapons are not a weapon of mass destruction because in order to use them, someone has to carry them. And autonomous weapons don't need anyone to carry them. You don't need 10 million people to launch 10 million attacks. And that's the difference. So if we make autonomous weapons, we are making a new class of weapon of mass destruction that is going to be cheap, easily proliferated, and much more effective than nuclear weapons. So that's the main argument, that it wipes out security for humans at, at all levels. You know, whether it's anonymous assassination at the individual level or repression at the government level or mass attacks between, you know, of non-state actors against states or war between states, we're looking at an ability to inflict mass casualties that, you know, really only nuclear weapons have, but they'd be much, mm. much more effective and selective as well. So that's, that's the main argument. There are other arguments to do with stability, the lowering the threshold for going to war, right. accidental warfare, and so on. But I think the weapon of mass destruction is the main one. So I, I just want to make sure that's absolutely clear, because the, the intuition, I think that the intuition that most people have when thinking about this is a little faulty. I, I, th I think that when you hear about autonomous weapons, you think of something like a drone you know, we, we currently have drones piloted by people, and then the concern is, well, if, if, you, if you take the human out of the equation, well, then the, the real fear is that this drone will not be as intelligent or as discriminating as you might think, and will pick the wrong targets, or it'll be callous in ways that people aren't. It's collateral damage settings will uh, have uh, you know too high a tolerance for the wastage of, of innocent human life. And that's the place of ethical failure. But more pressingly, it's the scale issue, which is when you have drones piloted by people, you really do have just one man and his rifle. Whereas once you go autonomous, it is a, by definition, a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah, um, I, I think that the issues of discrimination and, in general, compliance with, with the laws of war are real because it is quite difficult to do, you know, to do this right. And some people I've talked to in the military argue, well, look, you know, we, we have no incentive to have weapons that are indiscriminate because we're not going to be able to use them, which is true in peacetime. You know, and, and when we're operating drones in Pakistan with only at most the quasi-compliance of, of the Pakistan government and very much concerned about public image and, uh, and the opinion of the Pakistani population and the stability of Pakistan and so on. So we're very, very careful in, in the drone program to, you know, to do our best. And even so, we still still seem to sometimes fail to protect civilians. What happens in war is completely different, of course, right? We, the things that happened in World War II on both sides were war crimes on massive scales by mm. contemporary standards. And so it, any argument that says, oh, well, we'll only ever use these weapons in ways that comply with international 
law doesn't hold much water in practice. But as I said, I, I think that's kind of a red herring because the temptation and, and the likely outcome here is that these weapons will be used in very large numbers and possibly by non-state actors if they're available, uh, you know, if there is mass manufacturing of these weapons. Mm. And so the the thing about weapons treaties, so we're we're arguing that there should be a treaty, they make it very difficult to have any commercial manufacturing of a weapon that's banned. So the, there is no commercial manufacturing of chemical weapons or biological weapons. There is, uh, and, and even with landmines, where many of the major powers, um, the US, China, uh, India, Pakistan, and so on, I think have not signed the landmine treaty. But nonetheless, there is at, at the moment only one manufacturer of landmines left in the world, and that's the Hanwha Corporation in South Korea. And they may be having second thoughts about this. So it really does have the effect of stopping the manufacture of large numbers of weapons when you have a treaty. And no one is arguing that we should undo the chemical weapons and the biological weapons treaties. And uh, I think the argument for an autonomous weapons treaty is similar to the biological weapons treaty, mm -hmm. which is that although the, it was the US and the Soviet Union who were developing these weapons, the concern was that once they succeeded and created an operational biological weapon, it would become commoditized and then it would be used against the American population or the Russian population. And so this was an argument that Kissinger made to Nixon and Nixon agreed and said, okay, you're right. Let's actually just put a stop to the development of this kind of weapon so that we actually increase our security by banning a whole class of weapons that could be used offensively against us and against which uh, there wasn't necessarily any effective defense. So the same arguments apply to autonomous weapons. And I think from a strategic point of view, it would be wise for the major powers to, um, to not go along this route. Mm. How hopeful are you that we can pull the brakes there? Because my, my concern is that when you think of what would make a weapon autonomous, that seems dangerously close to many things we're going to want our machines to do outside of any possible application in war, and that they transfer from you know one, one piece of tech to the other could be fairly trivial. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think it's any more difficult to make an autonomous weapon than to make a self-driving car. And this is an argument that some people use, like, oh, well, if you ban autonomous weapons, that's going to put all kinds of constraints on civilian research and development. But this, I just, I think, is a complete red herring, because last time I checked, we do have a biology department on campus, and mm. they do do research. So the Biological Weapons Treaty is not really constraining biology research that much, and same with the chemistry department. In fact, it makes things a lot better. You know, if if chemistry was the field responsible for constant mass atrocities all over the world with chemical weapons being used, mm. how popular would chemistry research be as a field? How many people would want to go into that field if that was the major, you know, they used to talk, talk about better life through chemistry. Well, 
this would be worse life through chemistry and it would not be a very good situation for the field of chemistry. And we're seeing this with AI, that people are reluctant to work on applications of AI in defense because of the likelihood that it would be used in autonomous weapons. And I think if that were not possible because of treaty obligations, then people would be more willing to look at applications of AI in defense, of which there are many that don't have any of these problems. What about our need to develop autonomous weapons on the off chance that some adversary deploys autonomous weapons? That the only defense against someone breaking the treaty would be, have, would be to have some analogous technology ready to go. Is, there, is that a, something that anyone talks about? Well, so we're talking about banning lethal autonomous weapons. So there's no, there's no ban on autonomous weapons that can only target other autonomous weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're not right. talking about banning anti-missile defenses because right. when you shoot down a missile, there's no, they don't have people inside. So the, I mean, there is a, there is a question, okay, if, if the only defense against a swarm is a swarm, then we're building defensive swarms. And the only difference between a defensive anti-robot swarm and, a, and an offensive anti-human swarm is the software, right? The, what yeah. it considers to be a target according to the recognition algorithm. That could be a problem. And we've been working on anti-swarm defenses now in the US for about 20 years. Um, and most of this is classified. So I actually don't know what the state of the art is. But what I have seen in terms of anti-swarm defenses is not another swarm, but various kinds of ground-based laser weapons and mm-hmm. nets and chaff and electromagnetic weapons and things like that, which, which would not be easily turned into offensive weapons. Well, Stuart, it's been fascinating. And uh, as measured by the fact that I told you I would keep you an hour and I've kept you nearly two. So thank you for uh, your generosity here. And um, the next time we meet, I will... Um, be skinning rabbits and playing Go, so I'll be unrecognizable <laughs> to you. Nice to talk to you, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.